Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, July 20th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. We've got a bit of a controversy here this morning. Do we? Uh, you sure, sure we do. <laughs> Mike has landed. I mean, we're a local podunk radio show, right? I mean, we don't profess to be yeah. anything other than that. Well, we are. Uh, I don't want to call it a podunk town and a podunk town and a podunk town. I'm talking about Florence, Sumter, and Orangeburg. But we are certainly a podunk radio station in, uh, in some of these um, very similar sorts of towns um but in the in the last couple of years we've managed to um score an interview with former president donald trump as well as uh, as of this morning an interview with former vice president mike pence mm-hmm. mike pence will be in florence tonight at seven o'clock if i'm not mistaken at the florence baptist temple um life uh, no america post uh, row is kind of the theme and uh you got to believe he's here testing the waters uh, for the what sort of appetite the the voters of South Carolina have for a a Pence um, candidacy for president? Uh, I would imagine he's always been a very um, culturally conservative Republican. So the the Roe Wade issue plays right into um, the wheelhouse of his political career. Um, I share similarity in that I am a uh, he's a former governor of Indiana, but he hosted a radio show. Um, left politics. He left under his own terms. I didn't, um, but we both left. Nonetheless, um, he ended up with the radio show in Indiana, became wildly successful, uh, very impactful in Indiana politics. Uh, but our producer, Mike, scored uh, diligently worked behind the scenes, um, networking with politicos. I think he enjoys this a little more than makes me comfortable. Uh, a <laughs> little bit. He may have that bent gene. I mean, you've got to have somewhat of a bent gene to be in this uh, sort of muck. And um, it seems to me that Mike may have uh, that bent gene imported from Freehold, but a bent gene uh, nonetheless. Not Freehold. Where are you from, Mike? I mean, your father was from Freehold. The the name of the town, the Uh, next town over is what you said. Yeah, it was Howell. And then my freshman year of high uh, high school, I moved to like right outside Princeton. Okay. Princeton. Mm, Okay. Well, mm, mm, Princeton. Um. (laughs) So at 8.30 this morning, scheduled to appear uh, via phone interview is Mike Pence uh, as he makes his way to South Carolina, testing the waters once again uh, to see what the appetite is for uh, a Pence candidacy as, you know, everybody waits on Trump. I mean, everybody, I don't know that I've ever seen it this way. I mean, obviously I've not. I've never seen a former president considering running again after losing in a presidential campaign, uh, despite what you believe. He lost. I didn't say he lost fair and square, but but he lost. <laughs> but he's not in the White but, House. But he's today. not in the White House. Therefore, he lost. And Pence was a central figure of the electors and the certification and uh, the January sixth hearing. So we'll um we'll have him uh, call in at about eight thirty. I don't know if Mike's got to call them or they're calling us, but somewhere around eight thirty scheduled. Now, once again, these things are hard to pin down, but that's where we are uh, this morning. So yeah, this Podunk Radio Station. Podunk Radio Show has scored an interview with a former president, and now Mike. Congratulations, uh, Freehold has scored yeah, one nice with job. a former vice president. Um, speaking of the president, former vice president, uh, politics in general, um, the Maryland GOP governor's race. I paid a little bit of attention to that last night, and it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's a what? I mean, it's just a romp. Do we, I mean, it's, we have some uh, primary results from yesterday? Uh, Dan Cox at about 56%. He was the Trump-endorsed guy, right? Uh, Trump-endorsed guy. Not just the Trump-endorsed guy. He bust people uh, from Maryland on January 6th to the to the rally. 
uh, the rally riot insurrection, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he tried to impeach Larry Hogan. Okay. I mean, he led some of the efforts in COVID restriction time. Hogan did some uh, air quotes here, Democrat governor <laughs> sorts of things. And, um, and, you know, Dan Cox wanted to know part of that and um, actually introduced legislation to impeach former um, governor or still current governor, Larry Hogan can't run for re-election. He's term limited two consecutive terms in Maryland, similar to South Carolina. But yet Dan Cox had 132,428, about 80% uh, has reported. Uh, they don't count absentee ballots until Thursday for some reason. Um, the mail-in ballots, the absentee ballots are not counted. I mean, it's kind of weird. Why not today? Why not yesterday? No, Thursday is the day Maryland is set aside. It's the day they'll count uh, some of the absentee. Um, Tom Perez, former transportation secretary uh, under Barack Obama. Yeah, under Barack Obama uh, was a candidate. Didn't fare so well. Um, Wes Moore, a Democrat endorsed by, ready, Oprah Winfrey, an author. He's an author who has some sort of friendship with Oprah Winfrey. So in, um, so, so the Obama endorsement of Tom Perez, he didn't endorse, but I mean, he's a, he's a, uh, he's an alumni of the Obama administration. Tom Perez got 27% of the vote. Wes Moore endorsed by Oprah Winfrey and a fellow author, um, 37% of the vote. So it appears they hadn't, uh, the AP hadn't called that ratio yet. only 62% of the votes counted. And the reason there's 80% of the votes counted in the Republican primary and only 61% of the Democrats is the Democrats will have a much higher um, number of absentee and early and mail-in ballots. They always do. And this is where we believe some of the shenanigans come in. And if you allow for more absentee ballots, more uh, mail-in ballots, more of the unconventional way we've historically voted, the Democrats have uh, more and more and more runway of which to uh, play loose and fast with some of the rules. I'm not saying they are. God damn. Um, I'm saying there's potential they would. So, yeah, uh, you know, if, if it matters or not. Now, here's what will probably happen. The state of Maryland uh, has twice as many registered Democrats as Republicans. I do wish Thick Penn were here today because he knows. I mean, he's always argued about the, the corruption in Maryland politics. Um, so, so either you believe, and this is kind of interesting to me, and here's the dynamic I think that, that was and is in play. So Larry Hogan wins two terms as governor of a state as a Republican in a state that has twice as many elected Democrats. Is he a Republican? And then he endorses a Republican primary candidate that gets killed by a Trump-endorsed candidate. That leads me to believe that the Republican voters in Maryland don't buy anything Larry Hogan's selling. And, and maybe, I mean, it, it might be stupid. Um, you know, all of a sudden, you're going you're gonna to more than likely have a Democrat. It'll be Wes Moore. The Oprah Winfrey endorsed candidate will probably beat the Trump endorsed candidate, but it has very little to do with the Trump endorsement and the, the Winfrey endorsement. It's just the fact that Maryland has twice as many registered Democrats. And, uh, and I do, I mean, the one thing I've been highly critical, I guess the, 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 the one thing that I was most critical in Jim DeMint's political career was the day he said, you know, I would rather lose with 48 true conservatives. I feel a little bit like that. In this particular situation, really? well, I mean, I just don't know what is Hogan doing that that is conservative. I mean, it's one of the most liberal states in America. Still, governed as one of the most liberal states in America. Um, so, does it make any difference whether a Republican is governing liberally 
or a Democrat. I mean, wouldn't you kind of sort of rather a Democrat govern uh, Maryland? If I lived in Maryland and it was a Republican voter, I'd probably be concerned about how left Wes Moore or, or, or Tom Perez or some of these others. I think there was another candidate, Frank Show, uh, only got about 19, 18% of it. Some people thought they uh, that that candidate could make a, a run because there would be division between the more the Winfrey and the, uh, and the Obama camp. So you got, you know, somebody plays in here uh, and this is primary politics in America today. But, um, but, but to me, it just, it continues to solidify the impact Trump has. I mean, it just does uh, an incumbent and, and what I've read fairly popular Republican governor, but it appears to me he's popular with Democrat voters. Now here's the oddity. And we're kind of getting in the weeds. I talked to Robert a little bit yesterday. Um, here, here's the oddity here. So Hogan is celebrated as an alternative to Trump. I mean, he's been on Meet the Press three or four times. He's traveled the country uh, offering a new version of the Republican Party. You know, the looking forward, conservative, uh, pro-business. I mean, the, the things that we've been told forever and ever and ever and ever, Hogan um, is kind of the guy that has taken on that that challenge he's accepted the challenge of confronting trump um but his endorsement gets just smoked in his home state that just i mean that shows anybody i mean you you can be politically illiterate and still conclude that larry hogan has zero percent chance i mean i don't know how you ascribe a negative number to his chances i mean it's minus 22 in fargo north dakota if you're larry hogan i mean he has zero i have as much chance being the Republican nominee, as Larry Hogan does, but they still trot him out there as if there's something to see here. And there just simply well, is not. because the insiders and the, uh, but, I I mean, guess the when, old but, type Republicans. But when do you stop making a fool of yourself? I mean, when does two plus two stop equaling four? Will, will they ever? Well, I mean, if you, if you run Larry Hogan out there tomorrow or the next day as a, as a viable alternative to Trump, you, you just don't buy that two plus two equals four anymore. You just can't. I mean, you you got to believe that two plus two all of a sudden equals five. That there's no mathematical way to get there for Hogan. Um, I mean, if Hogan loses to Cox, excuse me, if Schultz loses to Cox in a Maryland primary, you know, by a couple of hundred votes, okay. I mean, you know, let's have a debate. I still think Trump wins that debate going away, hands down, without even a contest. But for argument's sake, let's say that that Dan Cox, the Trump endorsed candidate in Maryland beats Hogan's endorsed candidate, Kelly Schultz, who worked for, um, I think she had a couple of jobs in the Hogan administration. Um, I mean, if, if that race is, is very, very close and down to the wire and we have a recount, okay, let's have a debate. There, there may be something here with Hogan's movement. But 56 to 40 in the home state of the incumbent governor who made an endorsement in the party of which they call themselves a member of? I mean, it's just... It's it. I don't understand how they can march or, or parade him back out. I mean, it's. I don't want to say it's embarrassing to Larry Hogan. I don't think Hogan gets embarrassed because I don't think Hogan cares much for, you know, the Republican primary voter. I think he's one of those elitist establishment figures who wish we would go away or at least transform ourselves in the back. We what what we have historically or get back to our uh, senses been. is probably what. And he and I say. and I can hear a lot of our listeners. I don't give a damn what happens in Maryland. I don't either. I mean, I really don't. I could care less who the governor of Maryland is. Um, I don't think Hogan's a conservative. I think he parades and and he's a bit of a political charlatan. I mean, he walks or runs around saying, I'm the alternative to Trump. I'm the alternative to Trump. Well, the, the Republican primary voter in your state don't want any part of 
um, the alternative to Trump. They want something very similar to Trump. And that leads me to this point. Um, Mike Pence will be with us, you know, this morning at 830 via um, a radio interview. Pence is the one guy that could thread that needle. I mean, I don't know how he threads that needle, but I got to believe that's his strategy. You know, we've had this debate. What is too much Trump? What is not enough Trump? What is just the right amount of Trump? You don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. Right now, the Republican primary voter appear to believe that Ron DeSantis kind of fits that bill. He, he meets that definition. Um, Mike Pence has, has had nothing in his political history to lead us to believe that he's an America first Republican, but Trump picked him as his running mate. So he is that street cred that nobody else has. I mean, nobody else in a Republican pride. If Trump doesn't run, and we have DeSantis, Pence, and a couple of others, uh, Hogan, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then, yeah, I mean, Pence can say, you guys are calling yourselves this. You're calling yourselves that. I mean, the, the guy picked me. He didn't pick you. He didn't pick you. He didn't pick her. Didn't pick them. He picked me to be his running mate. And that does validate, in some way, shape, or form, his potential run uh, for president. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what we want to get to the bottom of. Now, once again, he's a cultural conservative. He's a social conservative. He's a, a very God-fearing man. He's made that a big part of his political life and his radio show in Indiana. Um, and we'll just hear what he has to say when he comes on the air at 830 uh, this morning. But once again, congratulations and thanks to Mike for scoring um, well, the second biggest fish out there <laughs> if you're a um, an America That's First true. Republican or a Trump supporter. Is there somebody on the call? On the call? Let's go to the phone. We have John in Lamar. Hey, John. Hey, good morning, guys. Um I just want to make two points for you, Ken, about the, the Maryland race. Um, Dan Cox did win because of Trump, but not because of what you think. It's not because Trump backed Well, it is because Trump backed him, but the Democrats spent a load of money uh, on commercials and everything supporting Dan Cox because they feel as though he is the one that they can beat and they can beat Trump, you know, in the midterms for governor mm -hmm. and that's what that was about that, that wasn't about trump or hogan it was only about trump because the democrats backed cox for that um just to get him in it's about and two 1.8 million dollars is what the democrats spent right on uh, right, on, exactly. on trying to get dan cox elected in the republican primary right exactly and that, that was just because they knew that they, they think that they could beat a trump back candidate candidate quicker than they can a hogan back candidate but but if, but if uh, Hogan okay, but John, stick with me. You know more about this than I do because you have some family in Maryland. So yeah. so is Hogan a Republican? No. Okay. So if Hogan's not a Republican and he's endorsed Schultz and Schultz runs against, uh, let's hypothetically say Westmore, the uh, the Hillary, excuse me, the uh, the Oprah endorsed candidate runs against Schultz, the Hogan endorsed candidate. Is there a Republican in the field? No. Okay, no, and that, that's kind of that. that and that's kind of what, so, so Dan Cox really and truly is the only Republican that has ever run in this race. He, he is. And, he, and, and, and believe me, uh, you know, I'm not only family, I own property and everything else up there. So I, you know, I have to keep an eye on this stuff, but he, um, he is a true American first Republican and he would be the man to be up there. But see, the problem is, and you had a caller call in yesterday and said about, the. uh, uh Baltimore. Well, Maryland needs to be redistricted like they did here because Western Maryland is farmers. The Eastern Shore is farmers and watermen. 
And everywhere you look in those areas, all you see is Trump signs and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, people there are, are not 100% like we are here. But Baltimore, D.C. area, and Annapolis and that area are the liberal areas, and they outnumber us. They always have. And even back in the 60s and 70s, they always outnumbered, you know, the other people. And uh, that's the problem there. And it's just it's just this wrong, you know, for that. And I believe if Sinkin would ever call in again, I, I hate to tell you uh, all about that, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, he knows that up one side and down the other. I mean, he's always talking oh, about when he, when he was a young person fighting the Democrat machine in, uh, in some, of the, uh, some of the Baltimore areas and some of the other what he called yeah. the city folk. You know, in Maryland. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's, that's exactly, and and, that, and that, that's the problem up there. But the Democrats got Dan Coxia. I mean, they wanted him there because they feel as though they can beat him in, in November, and that, that's what that was about. Because I'm telling you, Dan Cox is straight up. I mean, he he's if I didn't know anybody, I'd say he's from South Carolina. <laughs> Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, I read a good bit about him in the last few days. I mean, he organized some of the bus trips. Uh, Republican primary voters, Republican activists wanted to go to to the January 6th rally. He organized some of that. Um, when Hogan passed down some of the COVID restrictions, uh, he offered up a, uh, uh, a policy to impeach Larry Hogan. I mean, he's been a Hogan antagonist. And I guess, you know, I understand the math. I mean, I get what the Democrats did. They promoted Cox because they believe Cox is less likely to win. The point I'm trying to make is if you've got Schultz, you know, the Hogan-endorsed candidate masquerading as a Republican— and you've got Wes Moore, the Democrat, you know, the Oprah Winfrey endorsed Democrat. Does it really does it really matter who wins? And I think Cox, I mean, obviously Cox doesn't have a 50-50 chance of winning. He's probably got a one in four chance of winning, but but at least you got a Republican in the field. And here's where I feel a little bit like Jim DeMint. I, I might would rather lose with Cox. I might would rather have a 25% chance of winning with Cox than a 50 or 60% chance of winning with Schultz. Because if you win with Schultz, what have you really won if you're an America First Republican? And once again, if this was the Senate, I'd feel a little bit different because the parties can apply pressure when they get to Washington. Um, how many par- how many senators break party lines? I mean, a few every now and then, but not many. So yes, I mean, if this was a Senate race, I would have uh, I would have probably supported Schultz over Cox because um, she has the best chance to win. I don't think she's conservative but when she gets to Washington and, and the party apparatus gets a hold of her, she's going to fall in line. But as governor of Maryland, what does the governor of Maryland do or influence that I have any interest in? Now, John's different because he has property there and family there. And I certainly understand that Thigpen uh, would probably care deeply about Maryland. It's home to him. I mean, it's his native land. But as far as I'm concerned, the only elected officials in Maryland I give two cents about are those who go to Washington, whether they're in the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate. So, um, yeah, I would have a different opinion if this were a member of the Senate because, once again, the um, the machine can get a hold of you and keep you in line uh, with an R beside your name. You better, especially being kind of a rookie and new to, new to the town, you better do what the party apparatus says do or you'll find yourself primaried and unable to raise money. Yeah, that's how that works. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. I told you some of the most interesting content for this show is the comment section on some of the websites and blogs and, and news sites that I visit. Uh, I went to the Dispatch. The Dispatch is 
kind of Jonah Goldberg's uh, baby. Goldberg left Fox News because he couldn't tolerate any more of the nonsense that Trump offered up and the unwashed, the, the Neanderthals, the NASCAR fans, the knuckle-dragging Trumpsters really grated on him in a way that, that forced him to, to, to abandon the Republican Party. Now, he'll be back one day when we suit his fancy, but right now he's a bit... Was um, he one of those that announced his departure, even though nobody asked? Yeah, I mean, like, he's in the Scarborough Club. Okay. You know, remember, remember Joe, Joe Scarborough wrote an article for the Washington Post, or an op-ed, where he announced his um his leaving, his exiting the Republican Party, and I just wondered who asked. I mean, did anybody ask Joe, Joe, are you staying or leaving? Um, He just thought upon himself. I mean, these people have a very um self-secure, <laughs> self-security <laughs> about themselves. themselves. Yeah, a very high opinion of themselves but uh but goldberg is i mean he's founded this publication called the dispatch and it's uh it's anti-trump 101 it's never trump it's you know america first is such an elementary political agenda no seriousness there's no meat on the bone uh, i went back and read an article yesterday about some of the um some of the january 6 hearings that goldberg wrote um it makes me angry i mean it really makes my blood boil when i read um this thing but i understand i mean he he's got to find a way to make a living I mean, the Republican Party that he, you know, fed upon, um, leached himself to and figured out a way to make a, uh, I would imagine, a more than decent living um, is falling apart. And he and people like, you know, the Lincoln Project and David French and um, Evan Mullen and Bill Kristol and, you know what I mean, these um, these party, these self-anointed masters of the Republican universe. Nobody's ever appointed them to anything. They've kind of self-appointed themselves as, you know, the opinion leaders and the forces within the Republican Party. And all of a sudden, they get the rug snatched out from under them, and they're they're kind of left scrambling. There is no weekly standard any longer. I mean, imagine that. I mean, Bill Kristol and the weekly standard were kind of the, um, I, I don't want to say the uh, the competitor. Well, they were to the National Review. I mean, if you wanted to know what was going on in Republican lore, you went to the Weekly Standard or you went to the National Review. I would imagine in Thinkpen's Day, you waited on the publication to make its way to the mailbox. Sure. Uh, but it's different now. You download or you go online and you read an article. But the Weekly Standard is gone. I mean, it's a it's not a shadow of its former self. It ain't even a shadow. But it's gone. It's done with. I mean, there is no Weekly Standard any longer. The National Review has adapted uh, to some degree. I mean, they, they're... they're they're not sympathetic to the Trump movement, but they are considerate. Is that I mean that, that they consider it as part of something they have to report on? I think they, excuse me, I don't think they like reporting on it. I think they'd rather report that it's um it's made it's met its demise. It's no longer you know as powerful as it was. It's waned. I mean, there's a lot of of talk about, and I'm talking about Kevin Williamson and some of the writers, uh, Michael Brendan Darty, some of the writers at the um of the National Review that have tried to ah, convince people that the, the America First movement is not as powerful and, um, and influential as it really is. But anyway, back to the dispatch. Uh, I tell you, one of the things I like to do is read the comment section. So if I go to the dispatch and read an article by Jonah Goldberg, I got to believe that the majority of people who are there are never Trumpers. I mean, it's kind of their, it's their CNN, so to speak. Now, now, they believe they're doing the right and virtuous thing by going to the dispatch uh, to express their support for traditional, conservative, intellectual, formulated politics. So I go there and I start reading. So I had about 600 comments, and I read probably 100, maybe 150 of the comments. And one of the interesting comments, and I just wrote some notes here 
There, there was one comment that had about 16 or 17 uh, other comments associated. In other words, Dave Baker said, Kennard sucks. And Kennard, somebody who likes Ken, said, no, Ken doesn't. <laughs> and then Liana said, yeah, he does, because you can't tell him anything. I mean, you so, and you have this um th- this evolving conversation. So I got, you know, I started, I didn't comment, didn't opine, but I did read about all of that strain. I mean, it'd be like an email thread. You it's know, like and, replies to the comment. It, it is. It's replies to the comment. The uh, the original comment says X. Um, you take exception. You may agree. You may disagree. But you add something to it. Um, you confront something about it. But anyway, about halfway through this one, uh, you know, this one post, and then the the opinions given, um, not not in opposition or support, but just complimentary opinions. And by complimentary, I mean just kind of go along with what the previous um, poster said. Um, that there's somebody who says, um, and they kind of, it's, it's one of the few that says Jonah's full of it. And the dispatch sucks, you know, about this story It's January 6th. And <laughs> it's basically saying, um, that Trump is, ah, let me be careful. Trump is a guy that brings nothing to the table. I mean, the only thing he's been able to do is lie to people and get them to believe it. I mean, this is, that's the, the tenor of the, the article is, that's a pretty good way to explain it. The only thing Trump has done successfully is lie to people and get some to believe it. That there's nothing good about Trump. There's nothing good about America first. And some guy opines in this thread, no, nah, I mean, Trump did some good things. I mean, look at the Supreme Court. Look at, um, look at taxes. Look at trade. Trump did some good things. And, I mean, he was like the Antichrist. I mean, this guy was pounded upon, might have been a lady, in a way that, I mean, it was like one after the other after the other. And one of the interesting comments was, um, and, and it's on the dispatch now, so we think of the late establishment Republican politics, but the person said, um, where did you learn that in your two years of community college? Maybe you need to go back to woodworking. Oh. Now, now there's more to that than, than meets the eye, guys. Wow. Um, where did you learn that? In your two years of community college, well, you know what that is. That's an insult to anybody that doesn't have a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. You don't even deserve to let your opinion be known, you moron, because you probably don't have a four-year degree. I have a four-year degree. I would imagine the original poster has a four-year degree. You obviously don't. So why don't you take that two-year tech degree and go back where you come from? In fact, why don't you go to your garage and make something out of wood? I mean, that, that, guys, there is more to that than you can ever imagine. And I know I'm one that always tries to read between the lines, even when there isn't any room to read between the lines. But there's something there. I mean, there's something to that comment. And I wrote on my cheat sheet this morning, community college slash woodworking. That's the Jonah Goldberg mindset. I mean, that's the that, that's the establishment Republican. There are only... It sounds like Democrat. I mean, that's what a Democrat elitist would say, right? Okay, and here's where I'm headed. So what is the difference today in a Democrat elitist and a Republican elitist? Uh, the dispatch is, is kind of ground zero for where you go. I mean, if you maybe, I mean, nobody wants to call themselves an elitist. Uh, and some people would argue. I mean, I've asked Dick Penn on the show. We're talking a lot about him recently. I asked Dick Penn on the show a while back. Um, I said, Doc, your problem is you don't like the Republican voter. And I'll never forget you know what he said. You're probably right. I mean, you're probably right. I would pro- probably rather them be a little, a little more polished, uh, a little more um, politically informed, a little less re- uh, rambunctious and and reveling. Yeah, I'd probably like them to to be a little bit different. But I don't think Doc would 
um, impugn anyone's or, or assault anyone's per- political worth by saying you might have went to a two-year community college or tech college, and you might even you know know how to make something out of wood. And I, I just think that speaks volumes to where um, the the elite establishment movement has. And then here's the problem, Rev. It's not a problem. It's a political reality. You've got elite Democrats. You've got elite Republicans. The elite Republicans would rather concede to the elite Democrats than to the America Firster because they believe the elite Democrats probably have four-year degrees and don't, you know, don't practice woodworking. But those America First Republicans, if we allow them under the tent with any um, influence at all, next thing you know, we'll all be going to community college and making things out of wood. And that's not what this country needs. Damn it, that's what this country does need. We need more people involved in leadership and making conscious decisions on behalf of America who went to a two-year technical college, yeah. who have a garage with a uh, you know a wood a woodmaking or a woodworking machine, and and it's just absurd. But that's kind of where we are in political discourse in America today. So yeah, I mean, we need to be the party that embraces, welcomes, celebrates those who have two-year degrees from community colleges, who are in the HVAC business. And that's really where the rub is. I mean, the rub today in American politics is um, we need the HVAC repairman. We need the truck driver. We need the woodworker. We need the, the tech graduate. We just don't need them at the big table. We don't need them in the room when we make the decisions. When we make the decisions that everybody has to live by, those decisions need to be made by by the elites um that that's it's unspoken but it's so obvious and if you read the dispatch how willing and these people are in friendly territory you know they're not um they're not on breitbart they're not on the daily caller they're they're not on zero hedge but I mean, they're in the friendly confines of jonah goldberg's creation since he's left fox news and i mean he's a celebrated elitist establishment republican so once again they don't believe people like me or are on that website reading what it is they have to say. And not only do I read it, I think I have, I don't want to say uncanny ability, but but I think I have an ability to decipher exactly what it is they mean or imply when they say. Um, so basically, the Republican, the former Republican leadership, and this is where the rub is in the party today, they believe if you didn't go to a four-year college, you don't deserve to help make some of these decisions. Uh, even if you went to a two-year college, got that two-year degree, that's cute, that's nice. Go make a, a decent living. L- live a blue-collar, average, not menial life. But but leave the big decisions well, that need to be made to us. Equally. Go make something out of a pine log. <laughs> Won't you take that pine log, put it on your lathe, and make your, make your wife or girlfriend, or maybe even your grandkid, make your grandkid a lamp. That would be cute. While we're executing foreign policy, you, you, you with that two-year degree, go, go make a lamp out of a pine log. What, uh, what's equally confusing to me is, you know, by the nature of the site, the traditional, I guess, quote, traditional Republican. Here's somebody who pointed out, if nothing else, the Supreme Court, which should be for any Republican conservative, they should be very happy with what Trump did with the Supreme Court. But right? Trump did. But they it, wouldn't even acknowledge it. But Trump did it with the support of the person who went to a two-year tech college and may or may not make a lamp out of a pine log. That's not good enough for Jonah Goldberg. That's <laughs> not good enough for David French. That's not good enough for Joe Scarborough. That's not good enough for Mitt Romney. That's not good enough. For, for these folks who, once again, we didn't appoint them. They appointed themselves masters of the universe. And now they realize that self-appointment don't carry much weight. 
when it doesn't have public opinion as it's uh, as, the, as the wind in its sail. Take a break. Back in just a few minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Why don't you go fix your deck on the back of your mobile home, you Republican primary voter? I tell you, that's pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Here's Carl in the PD. Good morning, Carl. Hey, good morning. Hey, Carl. Hey, um, Scott Kaufman is is what happens when fake news goes unchecked. And here's what I mean: this guy he teaches he he teaches at a college, and he will he does not even get current events straight all right and refuses to will say oh i can't be objective about that how can you not be objective about all right here's what happened and here's uh you know this is this is you don't even have to talk about why it happened this happened and then that happened he refuses to look at the truth of, of the thing. He'll say, well, you know, he's a failure, but it's because the the polls are so bad. You know, Biden's a failure. It's because the polls are so bad, nobody likes him. That's why he's a failure. That is ridiculous. But notice that he, what his job is. He is a history professor. And, and uh, I give you credit for this, Ken. You have made me doubt history in general, I always thought I always thought it was kind of a BS um, subject to begin with, but every everyone knows fake news is real, right? And so that means that that the the media is going to tell you that something happened and it really didn't. And the only reason we know now that things didn't happen that the media says happened is because we have our voices in like. Um, uh, social media, and we have these cell phones, and we, you know, we have people who took pictures of stuff and took video of what the media tells you half the story of. Now, the thing is, everybody heard of things like yellow journalism, and you know, I'm sitting here, I'm saying, well, how how far back does fake news really go? Because if you read these history books, people say, oh, that didn't really happen. That, you know, that's revisionist history. There's no such thing as revisionist history if it's, the, if it's true that there's nothing new under the sun. They have, you know, fake news is not something that just happened or that just started. It's only now that we're just being able to prove that it's fake news. And he's so, he, he's so what that's all about you can't trust anything. I mean, he's the last person I'm going to trust for a uh, a history book or a history article because he can't even come to grips with current events when he does not agree with it, and that and that is dangerous. And and you know, Francis Mary really needs to get the hook for him because if you're going to come up here and say that the the reasons that that you think uh, Biden is a, is a failure is because of what he did with Ukraine. He didn't have, he didn't have anything to do with Ukraine. And that's not even in the top 20 of P of things that people, um, blame him for. He, and, and he has no responsibility about why gas prices and oil prices are as high as are the, as they are. Oh, he said yesterday, who would have thunk that, um, any, that him doing, having his policy on 
um, the oil industry would have have changed gas, uh, has changed oil prices. He actually said that. And if he's going to actually say that, you were there to to kind of check him on that. But nobody's going to check him when he gets in front of a computer and starts typing up some bilge where people don't know, and he's going to tell these lies or or just his 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 version of his wishful thinking of what he wanted to have happened. And I don't. I'm just trying to figure out well how much of this has made it into how how much of the Scott Kaufman way of of, of thinking and then uh, recounting history has made it into history books. So you single-handedly, Ken, have made me doubt all of what history has to say about anything. Thank you, Carl. I think I think that's a, that deserves a thank you. Thank you for the call. I want to. We got a, a hard break here, top of the hour, to make sure we get our next caller in before we take that break. Let's go there. But I want to follow up on some of what Carl said. Let's go to the phone. Actually, about a minute here, Larry. I'll make it quick. You know, there's two kinds of elitism, and I used to think that when you said, "Oh, it's elitism," that these were people who actually were elite, like they were the smartest, they were the richest, they were the most innovative. But now I've come to think of elitism as more of like the emperor has no clothes syndrome. These people create these areas in which they pronounce themselves elite, and then they just begin to bark out orders and proclamations as if they are the emperor. But, you know, if you go back and look at the uh, Socialist Revolution in Chile, what brought the elitists to their knees to their knees, what ended up ending Allende's life were truckers. Go study it. It's awesome. That's interesting. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Two good calls. We'll, uh, we'll opine on the other side. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. Larry and Carl, as usual, made really good calls. I'll comment on that in just a second. I do want to remind people tonight at 7 o'clock at the Florence Baptist Temple, Mike Pence will be uh, addressing whomever chooses to attend um, he'll be with us at 8.30 this morning. Thanks to Mike uh, for scoring a, an exclusive interview. So this podunk radio show has um, interviewed a former president, Donald Trump, and now a former vice president in Mike Pence. So Mike Pence will be with us at 8.30 this morning. He will be in Florence tonight at 7 at the Florence Baptist Temple. And I think the address is, is named um, America After Roe. Uh, I'm going to go back to the previous callers, but let's go to our next caller and be considerate of their time. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, guys. Got a couple of things on my mind from earlier conversations this week. The first, this this elite situation that we're we're talking about, these politicians just really get me. Now, you guys know that I like Jeff Duncan a lot, and um, and and. Tim Scott and and Ralph Norman. The rest of these guys are just feathering their own nest. That's all they're doing is feathering a nest, making millions of dollars. William Timmons needs to resign. He's got too much drama in his life to be representing a district of South Carolina. But that, that's just my opinion on that. We don't have too many people up there that are really representing the people in in South Carolina. The the, 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 another comment I wanted to talk about, the, this conversation came up Monday. We were talking about electric vehicles. Um, there are about 250 million vehicles registered on the roads in the United States, and less than 1% of those are electric. Yet the power companies are telling Tesla owners, hey, let's back off a little bit on charging. Uh, we don't want to 
uh, crash the power grid. And and the government, Pete Buttigieg, says, oh, you don't have to pay $5 a gallon for gas. All you got to do is buy an electric car. That's like telling a homeless veteran, you don't have to live on the street. All you got to do is buy a house. So they, they want us to head toward what will be a disaster of biblical proportions because they don't know any better. Buttigieg couldn't have couldn't get the buses to run on time in South Bend. Now he's transportation secretary. But um, anyway, just a couple of thoughts and, and one more thing, and I'll let you go. You know the difference between Dr. Oz and the Wizard of Oz? I'm listening. The Wizard of Oz eventually admitted he was a fraud. Mm. Mm-hmm. Have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate <laughs> that. Um, I, I don't know Charles well, but but what I know about him, we share a, a common trait characteristic, and that is um, in life you get what you earn. And I guess my my concern, and it does bother me. I mean, this is probably something that bothers me more than anything why is Pete Buttigieg Secretary of Transportation? I mean, what what is he the earned? Box. What I mean, sure, I mean, that, and that's where that's I'm why. headed. Um, I just I was taught in life you get what you what you earn, and and look, I mean, I, I'll take ownership of my mistake in politics. I mean, I'd probably still be in politics had I not made that mistake. But but it's a mistake I made. I had to answer to that mistake. Why? Because everybody else does. That's the world we live in. When you do dumb things, you pay price. I mean, that's just the nature of life in general. When you make good decisions, you reap the benefits. I've been fortunate enough to reap some of the benefits of making good decisions. But life in general deals us a pretty fair hanging. Now, there's nothing fair about an 18-year-old getting cancer. There's nothing fair about a 25-year-old dying in a car wreck. And I don't try to understand that because I don't think I think I drive myself crazy and everybody around me crazy trying to understand why those sorts of things happen. But life in general is, is pretty fair. I mean, if you act the fool, you'll end up in a bad place. If you make good decisions, you'll normally end up in a much better place. I know in my life, that's the way it's worked out. But when I look at Pete Buttigieg, and I hear him say, um, the more painful the price of high gas becomes, the more likely it is that you need to consider, or, or the more beneficial, there it is, the more beneficial it is to have an electric car. Tell the person in Pamplico working at a muffler shop, tell the person in Lamar, working at a tire shop, that all they've got to do to stop being worried about the price of gas is buy an electric car. It's as easy as that. Well, that's an example of Buttigieg not having an answer to the real world. He lives in this, um, I call it the flight simulator. I mean, it, it's kind of the way Washington runs itself, and it's the way they conduct their business. We don't live in simulators. We live in real worlds. It's, we, don't, we don't have the luxury. The majority of us don't have the luxury of stepping out of a simulator after we um, crashed a, a, an airplane and saying, well, I mean, let's go get a ham sandwich, come back and try it again. No, I mean, we live in the real world. I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, imagine if you're somebody living in a rural town, South Carolina, and you've always patched your car up. I mean, you do the best you can, but you don't make much money. I mean, for whatever reason, you've never been on the good side of financial gain. Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it's not your fault. Maybe just uh, the way your life has worked out has led you to financially struggle. I know a lot of really good people who struggle financially. I know a lot of very virtuous and integrity-filled people that struggle financially. That That's not a, uh, I mean, a society has kind of adjusted and said, hey, success and failure are based upon how much money you make or don't make. I know a lot of very, very good people 
And I believe those people will get their rewards in heaven. I mean, I believe in the hereafter, and I think that God settles that score at some point in time in a way human beings can't even imagine settling that score. Um, but, but imagine if you're somebody who has struggled financially, and you've done the best you can to provide for your family, and you've done that. You provided for your family, but there ain't a lot left over. And all of a sudden, a guy in a flight simulator says, well, I mean, th- th- here's, here's what you got to do to stop being so nervous about the price of gasoline. You got to go buy an electric car. I mean, imagine the gall. <laughs> uh, imagine that. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's an out-of-touchness is what it is. But, but he gets away with this, guys. And the media allows these people to get away with, with saying these ridiculous things. But the person I'm talking about has always changed their own alternator. I mean, they're kind of a handyman. They know how to change an alternator. They know how to change a battery. They know how to put brake pads on their car. All of a sudden, they've got to buy a car that they know nothing about how to fix. So when the car goes south, when something happens to the car, they've got to carry it to a dealership. I mean, these people are doing all they can to pay their bills and keep their heads above above water. Buttigieg doesn't understand those people. In fact, he finds those people a bit, um, we, we can probably do without those people. Uh, I know political families that feel that way. I mean, I, I've, I've had dinner with political families who have disdain for working people. And all of a sudden, the working people, it appears to, um, they're, they're going to have a say in things. And you go back to things like community college and woodworking, and those comments are so predicated on a disdain that the elites have for what I call working people and regular people. And, and once again, um, the person who just has not ever been able to stand on solid financial footing is no less important to this society than anybody who has. I mean, the fact that you've got more money than somebody doesn't make you a better person than that. Um, and when I hear Buttigieg say these things, I just wonder how many times he's been to Pamplico. How many times he's been to Lamar? How many times he's been to Timmonsville? How many times has he confronted someone who changes their own brake pads? Who, who buys a, a secondhand battery, a refurbished battery, because that's the best they can do right now. And your answer is go buy an electric car. What an ass you are. What a pompous and out-of-touch ass you are to say something as derogatory. Maybe you didn't intend it to be derogatory. But, but everybody who struggles financially and everybody who doesn't have enough money in the bank to go buy an electric car or a credit score, a FICA score good enough to go get an electric car financed. See, Buttigieg believes you're disposable. Buttigieg believes that, that you, you're the problem with society. And if you'd only taken our advice and gone and got a four-year degree and, you know, gone into $50,000 in student, you don't have to worry about these things. Guys, these folks live in a, in a hypothetical, theoretical world that just simply does not exist. And I keep going back to the flight simulator. I mean, if you crash the flight simulator, nobody gets hurt. Somebody else gets in in 20 minutes and tries it again. But, but when you crash in the real world, there are consequences. There, there are realities that people have to deal with. And when gas gets to be 425 a gallon, it affects the way the working class lives their lives. And Pete Buttigieg says, just go buy an electric car and everything will be okay. I mean, the, 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 the gall for someone in a high-level government agency to address the American public in that way is not insulting and demeaning. It's just, it's out of touch. It's totally and completely out of touch. But that's who we've allowed to self-appoint themselves masters of the universe. And I mean, it should offend, it should bother and offend far more people than it really genuinely does. It's the same guy, of course, that uh, 
he and his bicycle made the ride into town in a van, and then for the last, what, a quarter mile, he got out of the van for the photo I mean, op. And But, but he's, he's a fraud, Reb, but the entire way we govern ourselves is fraudulent. And I, and I keep saying this, and I don't know, I mean, that, that's when you get to be, cons- I mean, that, that's one of those radicals. You know, that's one of those radicals. That's one of those guys that gets on the radio every morning and said, America's in decline, uh, you know, and, and we better be careful here, you know, the debt and all these other sorts of, well, I mean, we are in decline, guys. I mean, we're in dramatic decline. Here's the question we need to ask. We, we're past that. I mean, let, let's let's agree. Maybe you don't, but but the, the two of us agree. I mean, Rev was uh, reluctant to come here or, or to go there with me, but America's in decline. I mean, th- there is no doubt about that. The question we need to ask ourselves is, have we broken it? Have we broken it to a point of not being able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? And when a guy like Pete Buttigieg is in charge of America's transportation system, I do question whether we have broken it or not. Not whether we're in decline. That's obvious. But once again, when an American president has dementia, and appoints a guy who was a mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and the only street cred he has is he served in the Army or the military. I don't know if it's Army, Navy, Air Force, but he's a um, he's a veteran, and, and he's a presidential candidate, and he kisses another man on stage. I mean, imagine that. I'm not homophobic. I'm not homophobic, homophobic at all. But but we were not asked to consider that. We were asked to celebrate that with him. Remember when, when Buttigieg brings his husband on stage with him? And, uh, you know, they kind of do what husband and wives or husband and husbands or wives and wives. I don't know. I mean, you don't know anymore. Uh, but anyway, the, the USA Today article I read said, you know, that was a moment that all Americans should celebrate. I don't want to celebrate that. I mean, I'm not trying. I'm not, I'm, I'm not. I don't have a phobia about it. I'm not bothered by it. I'm not revolted by it. But don't tell me I've got to celebrate it. But that's that's kind of where we are in America. And people like B- Pete Buttigieg. Uh, the, the country takes him far more seriously than the country should. And the reason the country's forced to take him seriously is somebody made him uh, an authoritative figure. I mean, he has, a, he has a huge responsibility within the American government, but he believes that he's still operating in a flight simulator. I mean, if Buttigieg believes that if we screw this up, we'll just, you know, kind of tear it up, throw it in the trash, and, and start again. You are living in the real world. I'm living in the real world. $4.25 a gallon gasoline impacts effects changes the way the majority of us live our lives and then he insults the majority of us by saying we'll just go buy an electric car then the price of gas doesn't matter um wow now i gotta believe they're they're promoting him as kind of the next guy in the democrat party they're they're scrambling they're trying to find who's next they know that they've got a guy that's not going to endure i mean i I still believe and this gets way off the reservation talked to robert a little bit yesterday i mean i think it's 50 50 biden doesn't finish this term i mean i really believe that um, I don't, I mean, I think he's in dramatic, what, what have you seen of him since he got home, uh, from, from the Saudi Arabian trip, the, the Israeli Saudi Arabia, the Middle East trip. I mean, you've not seen anything. In fact, um, I think the John Kirby yesterday was asked about, you know, Biden resting after the trip. And I mean, it's kind of, um, the president has a quite busy schedule is what he says here. So the American people were so revolted by Trump, they elected a guy that they knew was in serious cognitive decline. That guy, in turn, appoints a former a former South Bend, Indiana mayor, who may or may not approve a sidewalk expenditure, 
as head of Department of Transportation. We can't govern in a flight simulator any longer. we got to put people who know what the hell they're doing but wasn't in that, charge of things that need to be done. Wasn't that a deal they cut? I mean, he was a presidential I, candidate. He I, got I, out I of the imagine, race. I would, but but that, once again, have we? is it a decline or have we broken it? <laughs> I mean the deal. Right. So so we got a, a president with dementia that cuts a deal with a with a former mayor of South Bend, and next thing you know, the mayor of South Bend who knows nothing about transportation but is in charge of the Department of Transportation sits before a subcommittee and just simply says, you know, the the painful high price of gas is not a big deal if you just buy an electric car. It's far more beneficial to buy an electric car. Well, maybe the people that he drinks red wine and Starbucks with don't have any problem buying an electric car. The majority of people he uh, associates with, I would imagine, are paid by the government. I mean, they don't, they don't worry much about what things cost because the majority of those people, remember we talked about how many gas cars there are? Uh, one gas card for every three federal government employees? I mean, imagine that one gas card for every three people who work for the federal government. And we think we're just in decline? No, I think we are broken. And somebody better work hard and try and fix it. Let's go to the phone. John in Florence County. Hey, John. Good morning, fellas. Hey, John. I've been a long and for the most part, uh, very supportive. I want to give you just a bit of praise. I think you know business very well. I'm at your strong point. Some things I think that you don't know a lot about. Uh, you use some self-effacing humor before you say anything about it. But uh, I feel you've been resistant to the the fact that we're heading towards Marxism. We're probably halfway there. Um, I've always felt, you know, you, you guys are fantastic, and I enjoy listening to you. But, Ken, when you talk to the professors you always go a little bit weak and uh but keep doing what you're doing because you are good and uh lots of people respect you thank you that's very kind of you appreciate that i do go a little weak on the professors i mean i'll I'll admit that because they're my guest that they're not here as paid combatants and I've always, Rev, and I've talked a lot about right. this. I mean, you know, I want to rip them up, tear them apart, especially Scott Coppin. Scott's a friend of mine. We see the world fundamentally different. But Scott's our guest. And Scott comes in to provide an alternate point of view, a different way of seeing things. I totally disagree with him, and I push back when I think it's appropriate. But I'm not here to be combative toward Scott because, once again, he's our guest. We don't pay him a grand, uh, you know, a week to come in and, and be kind of point, counterpoint, or, you know, you see it this way, I see it that way. I think those guys that go on Fox and CNN and, and some of the other networks, I mean, they're paid to go give their opinion, and they know it's going to be combative. And I, I just don't want to go down that road. I'm sorry. I mean, I, yeah, I get weak. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. Guilty is charged. And, and there are times I really want to just aggressively go after what it is Scott said, but he's not a paid combatant. He's a college professor who comes on, comes on to this show as a guest to offer an academic dissertation of how he sees things. And I think it's very, I think it's good for all of us to hear things from people we disagree with. But, but I mean, the caller is exactly right. I mean, I do go weak there, but, but it's not that I, you know, and I know I'm going weak there. It's no that I'm not my usual aggressive um, self. Uh, I, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag and go too far down this road, but Yano comes in uh, this morning. Freehold has a text from somebody in the Pence campaign. Um, 
I know what I wanted to say, but I didn't. Uh, what did I say? Uh, freehold. I said, wait till Rev gets here and let him handle it. Cause I know I want, what I want to say. And if I do it the way I want to do it, we may not have an interview at eight 30 this morning. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm a fairly aggressive person. I don't apologize for being as aggressive as I am, but Scott is our guest. And maybe this is the, the humble country boy in me. Mm-hmm. I just think you'd be kind and polite to your guest. And, um, and once again, if Scott were paid a thousand bucks to come on every Tuesday morning and kind of argue his points, and it was kind of a, you know, a combative, uh, you know, back and forth, that's one thing, but, um, I'll share this with you. I'm at the gym a lot. Scott's at the gym a lot. Uh, about every fourth or fifth time I see Scott at the gym, um, I walk a little bit before I work out, kind of get the blood flow, and Scott will say, uh, you mind if I join you for you know a lap or two? No. And he'll say, you know, you said something Tuesday morning that made me think, made me scratch my head. Um, that happens about one every three or four times I see him at the gym. Scott listens to what you say. He doesn't agree with you, but he respects our audience. And I know that because he's told me many, many, many times that after a call and after a conversation, he kind of sort of reconsiders. Um, I think Carl made a, such an interesting point when Carl and Larry called before the break of the other uh, in the other hour, when, when Carl said, you know, what historians believe is normally predicated on what has been reported. So if the media reports that, that Yano's from, you know, Freehold and not Philadelphia, then that becomes kind of, I mean, that becomes part of history. And, and you know, fake news, is, I mean, it's a recent phenomenon because Trump took it on and, and, and came up with the moniker fake news, but fake news has been around a long, long, long time. And I think Carl makes an interesting point. How much of history is fake because it was predicated upon fake news? And I think the that really and truly goes back to the biggest problem in America today. Those who have an alternate view, those who have a view that, that contradicts the power of bureaucracies or the power of government or the control of government, I mean, you're told basically to stand in that corner and be quiet. And historically, people have been afraid to combat uh, forces as powerful as the government and bureaucracies and, you know, I mean, the IRS, the FBI, the CIA, who wants trouble with those organizations? Nobody does. But people are now sensing the only option we have is to confront these almighty, all-powerful forces, because if not, they're, they're certainly not going to check themselves. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Mike Pence coming up at 830 this morning, scheduled to appear. Congratulations. And thanks to our good producer, Mike Freehold Yano, for uh, scoring that riff. Text me late yesterday afternoon and says, hey, uh, Yano kind of stuck in there, hung in there, mm-hmm. aggravated, pestered, bothered, um, persisted. And we've um, we've got an interview with Mike Pence got at 830 this done. morning. Uh, he's in Florence tonight at the Florence Baptist Temple, 7 o'clock. Um, addressing, um, I guess, an audience on America after Roe, since Roe v. Wade. I mean, Pence has always been uh, a very socially and culturally conservative Republican, and um, you got to believe he's testing the waters. I mean, you know, is Trump running or not? Is DeSantis the favorite or not? I mean, who, but Pence is one of these guys that, I don't want to say half pregnant with Trump, but he was, um, nothing about him was America first until Trump tabs him as his running mate, and then he becomes uh, you know, the, the vice president is part of the America first agenda. It'll be interesting to see what sort of appetite the Republican primary voter have for a potential Pence um, presidency. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville is our next caller. Hey, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, we, we keep asking why these people are in positions they're in. 
like Buttigieg. He he checked the box. That's all he did. He had to have a a certain their their groups. You know, he got in the job and took twelve week family leave because he adopted a kid. I mean, how how impressive is that? The American people are basically good. We give more money and charity to anybody in the world. And and we're going to survive this. Hell, I've, I've lived through 13 presidents, starting with Eisenhower, and we've had our ups and downs and good and bad. The, the thing now is I don't call people liars because I don't know what's in their heart. I just tell them I refuse to believe what you're telling me. So... Joe Biden, I've refused to believe what he's told me since he started running back in 1972. I mean, he has plagiarized, he has cheated, he's lied, maybe, I I don't know. But he he's just a nasty, mean old politician. And South Carolina, we've got uh, Mr. Jim Clyburn to thank for for him becoming the president. You know, they always rag about gerrymandering. Well, if Clyburn's district wasn't gerrymandered so bad, he would have never been elected. So we're we're gonna make it. I'm I'm so optimistic this this country is is the most powerful, wonderful place in the world to live. And as long as we get on our knees and thank God every day for what we have. He'll take care of us. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Well, I mean, that's a big if. Yeah, I mean, if we honor, I mean, you know, I've got this new prayer in my life. I'm being personal here for a second. Uh, the prayer that I've kind of stumbled upon, I mean, after reflection over the past several weeks has been, um, God, give my family the ability to live a life that honors you. Uh, that, that's kind of the way uh, we all get on these <laughs> tangents or you know we get something in our head i mean i had a week off i read a lot and relaxed a lot and i drank a little bit more than i probably should have uh, during that week off but um but but i kind of landed there the the pride and i understand joe's optimism and i share that optimism but i think you've got to be realistic and i think you've got to look the analogy i use uh, i think we touched on this a little bit last week when i was a kid nobody messed with nebraska football and Nebraska football reigned supreme. I mean, they'd win a national championship and compete for another. They'd lose one every now and then to Miami or Oklahoma would beat them. But, I mean, they were as good as it got. I mean, they, they were just one of the uh, the best college football programs of all time. Tom Osborne was the coach there. Um, probably a little bit of steroids mixed into the mix. But uh, you can blame it on Hay Bailing when uh, Hay Bailing and steroids leased a big, strong offensive lineman, and they would dominate the line. Anyway, long story short, there are still people in Nebraska who believe Nebraska football is as good as it's ever been, and it's simply not. I mean, it, there, there's no way Nebraska, the, the majority of fans have accepted this isn't the Cornhuskers of old. This isn't Nebraska football that my father and grandfather were associated with and pulled for. We've got some serious issues. And I think the most dangerous people in Nebraska are the Cornhusker fans who believe that everything is okay. Uh, there's an old saying that I use, he's worked at the paper mill so long he doesn't know it stinks. And I'm afraid that we've been coached into being eternally optimistic 
to the point that we believe we can just, whatever, whatever comes our way, God has ordained us to be his shining city on a hill and we can borrow $30 trillion. We can let men marry men. We can, we can let eight-year-olds enter into medical contracts that have sex change operations. But, but God will save us. I mean, there's salvation for the American way, but because the American way is so important to liberating humanity and doing good deeds and good work and, and charitably, you know, charitably giving to the countries abroad. And I mean, how can the UN function and exist without America? And there's this sense of entitlement that we have. And I think it's, I mean, I think a lot of Christians believe that, that we're on God's side and there's nothing we can do to screw that up. And I think we've done a lot to screw that up. I mean, what did Lincoln say? Uh, don't worry if you're with God, worry if God's with you. And, and I don't want to get to be a, a kind of a super spiritual debate here, but, but I think we have so dishonored God in our, in our negligence, our dereliction, our irresponsibility, our inefficiencies. And, and, and when someone's, I mean, I go back to the Cornhusker fan. I mean, you, you, you know, you're a Cornhusker fan. You've been in Nebraska all your life. You can't help but believe that Nebraska Cornhusker football is still the center of the college football universe, and everybody else knows it's not. And I think when you look at the stark realities, and Joe knows the stark realities because he's talked about some of the stark realities, I think it creates a, a lot of difficulty in being optimistic. I love America. I wouldn't live anywhere else in this world than where I live. But we've got some serious issues that, that people like Buttigieg have no clue or people like Biden have no clue in how to fix, how to fix or address. And they're not going to fix themselves. I mean, they're, they're, we're not going to self-medicate. We're not going to wake up one day and say, wow, that was a bad last 40 or 50 or 60 years. You know, let's get this. No, it's going to take a lot of grit. And you talk about the good or the bad of humanity. I, I'm struggling now. Is being radical a good characteristic and trait of humanity or a bad one? Because let me tell you guys, it's going to take a radical mindset to put this train back on the track. I believe that with every fiber of my being. The, the, the conformity that has gotten us here is going to be have to, it's going to have to be challenged. I mean, you're, you're, we're going to have to have courageous, stern, smart, strong-willed people who are willing to become politically radical in the way they see our country, they see our country's governance. And, and I don't know that we've got that in us because we are a very comfortable people. I like to say we don't want no trouble. And if, and if nobody wants no trouble, we're done. If there are a few strong-willed, courageous men and women who love this country enough to become radically involved in changing the course, yeah, I mean, I think it's without question salvageable. God ain't going to fix this for us. God will allow us to fix it if we so choose. That's up to us. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD is next. Hi, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, man. Uh, you talk about Nebraska, man. Uh, didn't you go to that game in 87? I think I, you said something about you went all the way out to Lincoln. I did. I drove with a guy. A guy worked in Newcor until midnight that night. He drove about 300 miles, and then I drive about 300. We never stopped, never got a hotel room. Uh, we drove a Nissan pickup <laughs> the entire way to Lincoln and the entire way back. Well, brother, man, I tell you, you a good fan. I think we lost or a moron. 21. I used to know some guys on that team. We did pretty good in the first half. But them guys were just so much bigger. And I remember back in 86, uh, we did well against them. Uh, they, they were in, at uh, williams Price, and it was a hot day that day. I was at that game. Uh, but bottom line, we, got, we still lost. Uh, and I was thinking about uh, Dave Braves. 
kind of watched the All-Star game. Glad to see that uh, Austin Riley and Freddie Freeman won the game. Quick stats for you. Uh, May 31st, Braves were 23 and 27. They're 56 and 38 today. So that's pretty, that's pretty strong, man. They're 33 and 11 since then. Time last year, they were 46 and 48. But would you trade this year for last year? They won the World Series. Uh, just to get to what you're talking about with this government and stuff, man, with um, Buttigieg and this and that, you know, Maryland, if you think about it, we have a weird government trickle-down system. Maryland, they're part of that whole thing. They, they get, they, you, either, you either work for the government or you get subsidized by the government, just like Fairfax County, Virginia. I mean, it's just a strange thing, and these people – I see them all the time. I'm in the hospitality business. I love people from New Jersey because I look like one. But I'm just saying, but the people come down here, they all work for the government. They, a lot of them are double dippers, or, or sometimes they're somebody that kind of, they'll pull the resources if they're subsidized by the government. But we live in a weird world, man. I mean, you literally have people that this is the Democrat trickle-down economics. Let's just give the government money and whatever that they can earn. Let them spend it on hospitality or cars or whatever. But the real world, it don't work like that. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. You know, there's an interesting number. And, I mean, it's hard to articulate this without getting, I don't know, one story overlaps another and this gets in the way of that and that gets in the way of this. There's kind of a weird, I'm always, I mean, you guys know this, but I'm always trying to look at what don't we know yet? I mean, there are a lot of things we know. We know that Buttigieg has no business being secretary of transportation, but he is. We know that Biden is in cognitive decline, but he's the president of the United States. I mean, we know these things. It doesn't matter what the news says. You know it in your gut. You know it in your heart. You know it instinctively that these things shouldn't be, but they are. But I'm more interested in what don't we know. I get bored with what all of us know. I mean, Rev, you know Buttigieg doesn't need to be Secretary of Transport. I know it. Obviously. I mean, uh, Yano, I mean, everybody knows that. Nothing we can do about it. We accept it. We live with it. Uh, it it's a government. The, the government sucks, and uh, he's just part of the government that, you know, that they put in place for this moment in time. But I'm always thinking about some, some of the macros that are headed our way that, that I think are going to matter more than we can ever imagine. And David was talking about, you know, the, the people that work for the government. Now, I touched on this a little bit yesterday. I've read a lot about social trends and social design and social uh, where society is headed. Here's where we're headed. And, and I've said this for several years, and a few of you are coming along now. The public sector is going to build resentment for itself amongst people in the private sector. I mean, the government's taking all your money. Uh, I told you, I got a buddy of mine in the banking business. Their bank has historically been a half billion dollar bank. Now they got about 800 million. Where's all the money come from? Government. I mean, the school districts have more money than they've ever had. The city council or city governments have more money than they've ever had. The county government. So, so, so gradually and incrementally, we're building this animus that, that the, the private sector, people in the private sector have for people in the public sector. One of these days, we're going to wake up. Uh, the, let, let me ask you a question, Rev. What do you think the, the margin is, the age of someone who retires from the public sector and the age of someone who retires from the private sector. What do you think that number is? I mean, give me the margin, the separation. In other words, the, yeah. the age of someone who retires in the public sector is this. The age of someone who retires in the private sector so the is difference, that. The difference is? I'm going to say 15 years. It's 16 years. Mm-hmm. You know what it was 20 years ago? Nine. Yeah. 
I mean, we're seeing a gradual separation, uh, and it's all about pensions and retirement and, uh, you know, I pay. I mean, pay has changed the public sector. We've not seen uh, wage increases in the private sector. But but we're going to get to what that, – that is going to be one of the great, great, great political slash social, cultural – what economic debates that we're going to have. People in the private sector are going to begin begrudging, resenting people who work in the public sector. They're going to like them. And they, they won't not pick their kid for the ball team, and they won't not go on a vacation. But there's just going to be this subconscious. Uh, it's subconscious. You're going to try to make it subconscious because you're going to feel a little bit ashamed of how you feel about that person or that group of people because they have basically organized society to advantage anybody associated with government. Period. I mean, if you're associate business, what businesses make more money than any other business? Those that associate with government. Those that kind of leech off the government, those that align themselves with government. And it's going to build a tremendous amount of resistance and resentment from people in the private sector toward people in the public sector. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. It's a great show as always. I didn't get to hear the first part of it, but uh, what I've heard is uh, just fantastic as always. And Ken, uh, you're a gift to this whole area of the state. And well, I guess the country reaching to North Carolina somewhat, but uh, the uh, it, it's just, it's just a blessing to hear you. And I hope you can stay on the air. And I hope uh, your station prospers and continues to support your show. The uh, uh, but you and uh, uh, Mr. Baker have uh, done a jam up job as far as educating people on the uh, situation out there. But I I think it's more dire. I don't understand myself personally why the nobody everybody thinks well oh good old Joe. Well, I knew from the moment Clyburn uh, pulled in all of his chips, and he pulled in all of his chips from Puerto Rico to Guam to uh, get uh, uh, get uh, him uh, on uh, to uh, win this election and uh, and to survive the primary. The uh, but uh, I knew he was a crook. I mean, he was a registered plagiarist. I mean, how many people do you know that's plagiarized? I know of one person in my entire life, and uh, I, I can reach back in my memory uh, uh, just about as well as Joe, and uh, I know of one person that is a plagiarist, and this, this guy is a multiple plagiarist. He got caught at every level copying other people's work and not giving them credit. And, uh, I mean, I think he was a, a well-known crook in Delaware for many, many years. Uh, I mean, it's like uh, the PD's Johnny Mac or John Jen Red. I mean, uh, they except uh, he really put all of them to shame. I think I think uh, J- uh, Johnny Mac or John John McMillan and uh, uh, Jen, Mr. Jen Red would uh, be amazed at what they, what he's he's done. But uh, they they're gonna we're like the Titanic except we're we're drawing a course straight toward the iceberg. We're we're trying to target the iceberg. And you say these guys don't know how to fix it. Well, I know I they probably don't know how to fix it, but they're trying to not fix it. They're not trying. They're not trying to fix everything. And it's a full court press. They want to attack our culture, tear down our culture, tear down our beliefs. 
tear down uh, our institutions, ruin our economy, ruin our productivity. Uh, they want to uh, put so many regulations on the small businesses and the uh, medium businesses that they can't innovate or do things uh, in original ways. And it's, uh, I think uh, I don't put it past uh, Biden declaring uh, multiple emergencies to uh, get to uh, screw up the elections this uh, this year, and it's a hundred days. He's got plenty of times to get a uh, hundred hundred and ten or hundred eleven days to election. He's got plenty of time to call a bunch of emergencies, and I fear that. But they, these these people don't have. They don't think the same way that most. People that uh, listen to this show do. Yeah, Mike. Thank you. We got we got to take a break. Hard break. Top of the hour. Um, as Breeze says, they know what they're doing. I just wonder whether they are aware of what the dire consequences could be, or they care. if they get there, or if they care. Take a break. Back in a minute. Hour number three on a Wednesday morning. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Programming note at eight thirty this morning. Uh, former Vice President Mike Pence is scheduled to call in. We'll have an interview with our former Vice President Mike Pence, and then. Tonight, 7 o'clock at the Florence Baptist Temple, Mike Pence will be live and in living color in an event called America After Row. He'll talk a lot about, I would imagine, cultural and social conservatism, but he's also testing the waters to see what the appetite is for a potential uh, Mike Pence candidacy as a Republican primary participant in the 2024 presidential cycle care to mention what he may find as he tests the waters any idea he's probably the most interesting of all we kind of know what everybody thinks of DeSantis. we kind of know what everybody thinks of larry hogan i don't know that we have a good idea of what people think of of mike pence uh it would be the i may ask kahaley try to get robert to call in tomorrow i mean we may hook up with kahaley tomorrow about some of the polling and some excuse me some of the uh, gathering of information for people who will <laughs> right. pay good money uh, he right. doesn't he doesn't poll any longer folks mm-hmm. he gathers information accurate information for people who are willing to pay so we're talking about the democrats and what they're up to and the policies or whatever and and it's almost conspiracy theory if you believe that they're doing this on purpose but do you believe they're doing it on purpose, but maybe don't understand the consequences of these policies That's and their exactly actions? That's exactly the point I make. And it's not just the Democrats, the establishment, those in charge, they know they're wrecking the economy. They know they're destroying America. They are well aware of what they're doing. They're doing it for personal and, and, and congregate, congregate gain. I mean, you know, um, their team wins, our team loses. But this is not, we got to be careful. This is not all about Democrat and Republican. I said a few days ago, when academia is monolithic, when the media is monolithic, when the bureaucratic agencies are monolithic, somebody has to provide the equal and opposite force to a liberal agenda, and the Republicans simply did not do that. Why didn't they do that? Because they're in on the fix. They're in on the game. The Republicans have rigged the game just as much as the Democrats. We just tend to agree with the mailers they send and the commercials they run. Here's my fear. And here's the debate. Yes, I believe that the conspiracy is true, that they know what they're doing and they're intentionally doing it. Here's the problem I have. I don't think Pete Buttigieg understands what what problems he could create. It's not a flight simulator. I mean, it's not a test run. This is the real world. And when you basically 
concede to some of those organized or establishment forces, you destroy normalcy in the economy. So once again, I've never, maybe I've sounded like a denier. I've never denied that I believe they know what they're doing. These people aren't crazy. They're very competent. They're very smart. They're very measured in, in, in corrupting government. They're not good at dealing with a balance sheet. They're not good at running a business. They're not good at governing. The things they're good at advantage themselves. The things they're good at advantage themselves at the expense of average, everyday Americans. That's the problem. I don't think Pete Buttigieg has a clue what he would do to normal American or average Americans' lives if he forced. If Buttigieg had the authority today, he would outlaw gas-powered vehicles by the end of next year. I mean, he would do that. He's that much a believer in this nonsense green energy uh, deal. But Buttigieg does not understand the effect or impact it would have on people in Pamplico, in Lake City, in Lamar, in Timminsville. How many average Americans change their own alternator, change their battery, uh, change their own brake pads? I grew up around people who never went to a dealership to get their car worked on, Rip, because they didn't have any money. I mean, all their money had was spoken for. They're good, decent, fine, moral, ethical people. They just never uh, prospered financially. So all of a sudden, we're going to tell those people um, that alternator you know how to change, that car doesn't have an alternator anymore. Because Pete Buttigieg says the way to deal with high gas prices is simply buy an electric car. That may be the case in Manhattan. That may be the case in Silicon Valley. That's not the case in flyover America, but those people not only dislike, I mean, they have great disdain that they have to govern the, the people that are so beneath them. Hmm. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, sir. Kid, they know damn well, they do everything they're doing on purpose, and they know damn well what result of it is. If I do, if I, if I do a bicep curl, I, I'm doing that on purpose because I know it's going to make my biceps bigger. They know what they, they know. Maybe booty tags that stupid, but the rest of them aren't. And I'll tell you another thing. I'd I like to, Mike Pence would be maybe a shade better than Daggone Lindsey Graham and that idiot out of Utah, whatever the hell is Romney. I said, none of these guys are worth a crap. And I'll tell you, just like over there in the Ukraine, they got one senator over there that was born in the Ukraine, this Republican, that keeps talking about the corruption of the Ukraine. Well, why are the Republicans still back in the Ukraine? I, have the, I had a Mexican kid, he's 29 years old, told me yesterday, I was trading him. He was a part ownership of the Mexican restaurant. He goes, I don't know why you guys are letting these people in the borders. He goes, they don't want me here, Breeze. I'll tell you that. They don't want the people that work for me here because we vote conservative. We're entrepreneurs. We came over here to earn a living. He goes, why they're letting those people in? They, I guess they think they're going to vote for them. But I said, you know what? There's something more than that. They're letting all of these immigrants in for the sole purpose of destroying the very social fabric of this country. And the Republicans are in on it. The Republicans are in on it. You're right. You're dead all right. And so what we got to hold these Republicans accountable and bust their butt every time you interview them. Instead of giving them a soft interview, you know, you don't give them an interview like uh, like a, like the Democrat run CNC, CNN, but you give them a hard Republican conversation. Well, why are y'all doing this? Why are y'all back in a corrupt government in Ukraine? Why are y'all, what are y'all going to do about this illegal immigration? What are you going to do about this, that, and the other instead of talking about it? Because these SOBs are part of it. They all are part of it. And we got to get rid of them some way or another. 
and I, you know, and I hope the cotton cow wins. But I tell you, I've got to the point now where I don't give a crap who wins because ain't none of them worth a damn. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Breeze is talking about Cox. Uh, for those just joining us, there was a um, there was an election. Well, there still is an election. I think they count the absentee and early. Uh, the mail-ins, the early, no, the the mail-ins and the absentee ballots will be uh, counted tomorrow. Kind of strange. Have an election on Tuesday. Don't do anything today. Maybe the government working need a day off, and then they'll come back and um and count the uh, absentee and uh, mail-in ballots tomorrow. With about eighty percent of the votes counted, um, Ken Cox, who excuse me, Dan Cox, who is a Trump-endorsed Republican leads the Hogan-endorsed Republican, Governor Larry Hogan, about 56 to 40 percent. I mean, the AP's already called the race. There's not enough outstanding votes, we don't think, um, to change the outcome of that election. Um, and and this is where I sound a little bit like Jim DeMint. We talked to, touched on it early this morning. Um, Maryland has twice as many registered Democrats as Republicans, but Larry Hogan won as a Republican. Well, I mean, the, the, I think the most obvious question to ask is, Larry Hogan, a Republican. I mean, what would possess Democrats to vote for a Republican if they believed he was a true Republican? Nothing. So so when we get to the governor's race of, of Maryland, I could care less. I mean, in all honesty, I, in, in other words, I would rather a Democrat liberally govern a state than a Republican or a Democrat who calls himself a Republican. But the takeaway here, and we're talking about Pence, testing the waters and presidential campaigns. I don't have any idea what the appetite of Mike Pence is. I mean, I don't have any idea what you, the voters, think. I know the last three texts I've got uh, aren't very complimentary. Um, you know, no, that he's too establishment, too boring, um, too traditional, uh, too, too, you know, just the typical, what, what you would expect people that like Trump to say about Mike Pence. But, but Larry Hogan has been portrayed as somebody who could be a viable option to the the America First agenda. You got America First agenda, whether it's Trump, DeSantis, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, it doesn't matter. They embody, represent uh, an America First agenda. You've got Larry Hogan who says that's not the way this party needs to go. This party's um, history is on, you know, intellectual conservatism. I mean, we need to force people to read the National Review. Uh, Bill Crystal needs to be back on uh, the advisory team. George Will needs to write stories every week. I'm telling you, that's just, I've, I've never believed there's an appetite for that. So Hogan endorses Kelly Schultz, who worked for him. Um, is Schultz a Republican? She's running as a Republican. Uh, but Hogan ran as a Republican. So in Maryland, uh, yesterday, the Trump-endorsed candidate destroys the Hogan-endorsed candidate. But Chuck Todd, this past Sunday, had Hogan on uh, Meet the Press as a viable alternative to uh, America first. There is no viable alternative to America first. There is going to be a, a different articulation of America first. And and maybe Pence has an articulation. Maybe DeSantis has one. Maybe Trump has a little bit of a, um, but they're all going to be America first agendas or they ain't winning, period. I mean, that's just the way I see this. This, I mean, the, the battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party is over. I mean, I've said that a hundred times, make it 101. There's not a battle for the heart and soul. As much as Chuck Todd and George Stephanopoulos and the New York Times editorial board and CNN, as much as they'd love for there to be a genuine, real battle for the heart and soul of America, ain't happening. That's over. We, the people who vote Republican, have made our minds up that we're, we want America first candidates to be in charge. We want the party to advance 
an America first agenda. Now, do we have with clarity what that agenda looks like? No. I mean, we're a baby of a political movement. We're just learning to crawl, much less walk. We talk about um, how young America is. I watched the Open Championship a little bit on Saturday and a little bit on Sunday. Um, Every building looks like it's a million years old. I mean, it's cobbled stone, and it's a bridge that goes across some creek that they say has been there since old and young Tom Morris, you know, I guess officially uh, invented the game of golf. But uh, we're not we're, we're not the old country. We're, we're not St. Andrews. We're not Scotland. We're not uh, some of the European nations that have been around since the beginning. Uh, it's not the beginning of time, but for thousands of years. I mean, we are a new country. But within this new country is a baby of a political movement. And I think I, we, the people, myself included, expect us to solve all these issues and address all these disagreements today. And it's simply not going to happen. But but what we did yesterday was make it quite obvious that there is no appetite at all for Larry Hogan. There is no appetite at all for an establishment, you know, respected and invited by Meet the Press's Chuck Todd Republican. We don't have any appetite for that. You're not going to talk us into it. Uh, it doesn't matter what your mailers say. It doesn't matter what Chuck Todd, uh, CNN say. We are not going there. I mean, obviously, Bill Crystal wants to go there. Um, I would imagine Scarborough, which he's not a Republican. He's told us all. We didn't ask, but he told us anyway. He's now a registered independent. Good for Joe. Um, but the Republican primary voter yesterday in Maryland said, I'd rather lose with Dan Cox than I had win with Kelly Schultz. And I might be one of those. Now, now, if it was a Senate race, I said earlier, and I'll say again, if this was a U.S. Senate race, I would be more guarded. I would be more careful because once you go to Washington, you normally vote the party line. I mean, you're on this team or that team. We've had, I mean, I don't know of a Democrat other than Manchin and Cinema who have broken ranks. We've had, what, 10 or 12 Republicans on a couple of issues. I think there was a uh, an immigration bill. Uh, there was another bill. What it was, it was one that we got, a gun bill, you know, a, a Second Amendment rights bill that came along in Romney. And I think Lindsey Graham may have even voted with the Democrats on that bill. But uh, I think it's loud and clear. I mean, I've always known it, but but now the national media has to. They'll never embrace it, but there's no way you can march Larry Hogan back out on a nationally televised uh, political show with any credibility or validity at all and say, hey, this guy's worth looking at. I mean, this guy's worth a look-see. The reason Hogan won in Maryland, the reason Hogan's popular with Meet the Press is they know he's not a real Republican. He's never been a real Republican. He's not been any sort of Republican, but but I guess he couldn't win a Democrat primary because he probably had a thing or two in his political past that led uh, them to believe he's not as radical, you know, or radically liberal. Uh, I don't want to use radical as a bad word. I mean, I think we need to re... If there's a word in American politics that needs to have a different connotation, it's radical. I mean, for years and years and years, those of us who were considered radical were, were, I mean, kind of demeaned and, and looked down upon, frowned upon. Better get that guy away from the levers. I mean, he's trouble. He's a rabble rouser. He's a hell raiser. You know how those guys are. I think radical now is essential. I think the more radical people we have in politics, the better chance we have of saving this country. The fewer radical people we have in politics, the more likely it's broken and we're not going to be able to fix. Let's go to the phone. Here's JP in Florence. Good morning. Hey, how you guys doing this morning? Morning, sir. How are you? Morning, sir. How are you? 
good. You talk a lot about people having an appetite for this and that, and I like that. But um, I was reading a story yesterday about Nikki Haley putting some feelers out there for running for president. Do you have the appetite to support her at all, even if it's just in the primaries until she gets knocked out in a later stage? And that's really all I got. I'll listen to what you what you feel. Thank you. That's interesting. I was involved in a conversation before we took a week off with Republican operatives that you know have a lot of sway in the Republican Party in South Carolina. And we began kicking the tires on candidate A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And during the conversation, this would be the old guard. I mean, I'm in there with about three or four other what I'd call new guard America firsters. But the majority are not America firsters. They're not bothered by America first. They just don't under, they're entrenched. But they've been around the block. They're accustomed to Republican politics in South Carolina operating and working a certain way. All of these folks were very supportive of me when I was in politics. That's why I'm invited to the room. And they think I've got my finger on the pulse of where the party is and kind of where it's headed. And the reason they think that is you. I mean, the guys like you who call and we have these conversations every morning, uh, they, they sense that I'm in touch with what the electorate are thinking, believing, um, committing to. So, so I'm in the room and we're talking about this candidate, that candidate, another, probably 15 people in the room. Um, and four or five of us would be America firsters. Uh, the majority of others would be the donor class, the old guard. And um, so we get to this candidate and that candidate and another candidate. And then Nikki comes up and the old guard to a person said, well, she's from South Carolina. We'll have to support her. Everybody that, that would identify as America first said, no, we don't. No, we certainly don't. I mean, is she committed to America first? If she is, then let's consider it. If not, and, and the old guard were taken aback. The old guard was like, what? So you would support the governor of Florida before you would support the former governor of South Carolina? And everybody who identifies as America first, and I'm kind of letting you know where I stood, said yes. I mean, I would absolutely support a committed America first candidate over the former governor of South Carolina because I'm not sure. Well, I'm pretty sure she's not committed to America first. Tucker Carlson said something interesting about Nikki Haley a few days ago when he said, I like former Governor Haley. I think she's a fine and decent person. I don't want her in charge of anything. I mean, I certainly don't want her to be the Republican nominee, uh, but she's going to get a look. There's no question about it. The uniqueness of her characteristics. I mean, she's a uh, female. She's of Indian descent. I mean, there are a lot of things about, you know, the Big Ten and the diversity of the party, lack of diversity of the party that is going to elicit some level of support. But I just found it interesting in that room, the old guard, I mean, it was just a given. She's one of us. Doesn't matter what she believes, she's going to get our support. And everybody who identified as America first were not reluctant. They were just dead set. <laughs> well, no, see, that's just absolutely. how things used to work. Well, I mean, and you're right. And you're, they don't work like that and, anymore. And right? I have I have no problem with Governor Haley. I still consider her to be a, a friend. She got elected in 2010. At the same time, I got elected. Our trajectories have gone in very different ways, but I, I just don't buy that she's committed to America first. And I want somebody committed, full committed, all in, as Dabo likes to say. Take a break. <laughs> Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Joe Kernan on CNBC is letting Pete Buttigieg have it. Good. Uh, fellow Harvard graduates. Kernan's kind of an old curmudgeon. He's been on CNBC many, many, many years um, not, I don't want to say he's a big Republican, but he does look at things through the lens of a pro-business pundit. 
And, um, I mean, he is really letting, I mean, you can tell he's getting visibly frustrated because he's saying, but people need energy today. I understand uh, the theory. I understand the, the hypothesis. I understand um, the, the evolution, the, the fact that you believe we can um, wean ourselves from fossil fuel into uh, the electric vehicles. I just think the time frame and the, the, the strategy employed by the Biden administration is woefully lacking. We said earlier, and we'll say again, tonight at 7 o'clock at Florence Baptist Temple, um, former Vice President Mike Pence will be in town. Um, America after Roe. That's a monumental court decision. The biggest court decision of my lifetime. Um, and I think it's not the Roberts court, but rather the Trump court. And I think that really leaves its impenetrable mark on American politics from the um, from the Trump-Pence administration. So Mike Pence, former vice president, will be in Florence tonight at 7 o'clock. That event is open to the public. It's a big church with a lot of seats. So I would encourage anybody who has an appetite for um, what the former vice president has to say uh, to make their way to the Baptist Temple tonight in Florence. He's with us this morning. If I'm not mistaken, we have on the phone with us former vice president Mike Pence. Uh, Mr. Vice President, how are you? Well, good morning. Thank you for having me on. And I'm looking so forward to being back in South Carolina tonight and having the opportunity to talk about this new beginning for life uh, in America that you so eloquently described. So thank you so much. Good to be with you. Let me touch on a couple of other subjects, if you don't mind. We're watching CNBC this morning. Pete Buttigieg, Transportation Secretary, is, I guess, defending the Biden energy policies um, you guys committed to energy independence. When I say you guys, President Trump and yourself as his vice president, um, what do you make of the Biden administration's failures as we speak? Well, first off, we didn't commit to energy independence with the support of the American people and voices just like yours. We achieved energy independence for the first time in 75 years. We were a net exporter of energy because we allowed the responsible development of our vast natural resources across this country. But from day one, literally day one, President Biden has been shutting down access to American energy resources. And he likes to he likes to blame rising gasoline prices on on the war in Ukraine. But the truth is gasoline prices are rising because of the war on energy. They're driving a radical left green agenda. And it's one of the reasons last night I was with about 50 new candidates for Congress, I'm visiting Washington, D.C. You know, Indiana is home, but I popped out to see candidates for Congress because we've got a tremendous opportunity to take a step back toward the things that will make America prosperous and secure, lower gasoline prices, combat inflation, set us on a path to a balanced budget and a strong America. And it begins this fall with the election of a conservative majority in the House and the Senate. And I know South Carolina is going to do their part. Mr. Vice President, I couldn't let you get away without asking about the, um, we all have complicated relationships in our lives. Uh, My wife and I have a complicated relationship at times. My kids and I, I mean, I've been in politics. I understand uh, the yin and yang, the back and forth, the ebb and flow. But but what is and what was, I guess, what was and what is uh, the relationship you had and still have maintained with former President Donald Trump, who is still a dominant political figure in America, despite not being in office? Let me say, I will always be grateful that uh, President Trump invited me to join the ticket in 2016. And whatever differences that we had at the close of the administration, I can assure you, I will always be proud uh, of our record and what we delivered for the American people over those four years. It was extraordinary. And I 
I can tell you we parted amicably. I think we've largely gone our separate ways. Uh, but, um, you know, obviously his family is all in our hearts today as they as they lay to rest uh, um, Ivana Trump in New York City. And, uh, you know, we'll be uh, we'll be praying God's comfort for them. But, uh, you know, I just as I said, I, you know, you know, I'll always believe on that uh, tragic day in January 2021 that by God's grace, I did my duty. Uh, but I'll always be proud of the record that we created for the American people. And I'll always look to play my part uh, in advancing the conservative principles that we proved result in a more secure and prosperous America. What sort of candidate do you think the GOP voters across America are looking for as we go to the next chapter of where this party heads? Well, I, I think what the candidates we're looking for right now are people that are willing to step forward and end the speakership of Nancy Pelosi once and for all and, and to put Chuck Schumer out of the out of the majority leader's position in the United States Senate. And and also, you know, electing and reelecting great governors around the country. I've been traveling a bit supporting candidates at every level. Henry McMaster's done a phenomenal job standing for a growing economy in South Carolina, standing for the right to life. I look forward to speaking about that extraordinary step, the heartbeat bill and the progress South Carolina's made defending the unborn. But, uh, you know, I know there's I know there's always uh, there's always interest in a place like South Carolina for what's down the road. But uh, everywhere I go, I tell people now is the time for all of us to put all of our energy and focus behind the courageous men and women who have looked at this moment in the life of our nation, a challenging time in the life of our nation and are saying to their neighbors and their constituents, send me. And I'm working my heart out across this country to support uh, those members, to win the Congress, to win more state houses than ever before across the country. And then I'm sure the American people and the Republican Party will sort out sort out the leadership that we need in the days ahead. Last question. You will be in Florence tonight addressing uh, an audience on the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I never in a million years thought I'd live long enough to see the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I thought it was always constitutionally flawed, like the underpinning. Um, Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? State legislatures will now have the authority, power, and political might to make um, laws that fit their um, states. Uh, New York, I would imagine, will have a more liberal abortion law than South Carolina. But but when we talk about overturning Roe, fundamentally what changed in American politics as a result of that? Well, I, I, I long believed that we wouldn't see Roe versus Wade sent to the ash heap of history. And I couldn't be more proud to have played some small role in the administration that appointed three of the justices uh, that uh, that made that decision, and they've really given the American people a new beginning for life. And you know, the the radical left has has uh, you know rolled out the harsh and divisive uh, rhetoric. I expect as the election approaches, we'll hear more of that. But what the Supreme Court did uh, was essentially return the question of abortion to the states and the American people where it belongs. I mean that 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 was the net effect of the Dobbs. A decision. And uh, as I said, literally the day of the decision, now for all of us who cherish the sanctity of life, uh, now the real work begins because we've been given this opportunity to restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law. But now I will say tonight at the Baptist Church, as I've been saying all over the country, we, 
those of us that cherish the unborn, those of us that that come alongside young women in crisis pregnancies over the last 49 years, now more than ever, we need to work and we need to pray until the sanctity of life is restored to the center of American law in every state in America. And that journey really begins now. And I, I couldn't be more honored to be able to come and not just celebrate a moment for this new beginning for life, but really issue what I hope will be a clarion call to my fellow pro-lifers in this such a such an important time in the life of our nation that now the real work begins for life in America. And I, I truly do believe that that day will come when we are once again uh, a nation that respects the sanctity of life, born and unborn. Mr. Vice President, we appreciate your time. Have a great day. We will we'll see you this evening as you uh, as you make your way to Florence. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. Looking forward to be back in South Carolina. All the best. Thank you. There's former Vice President Mike Pence with a um, making an appearance in Florence tonight. Once again, at the Florence Baptist Temple, 7 o'clock tonight, uh, America After Row or America Post-War, excuse me, Post-Row, I think is the, um, the title or the theme of the visit. And uh, it'll be very interesting to watch um, him address as a former Vice President. Um, I mean, when you think about it, there, there aren't many people in the room when you're making a decision about who the nominees will be. And you've got Barrett, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh all voting to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, that, that's a tremendous moment in American political history. And Mike Pence had a lot to do with that. I mean, I got to believe that he was a, um, I mean, obviously an ally. And I think he did a great job in answering the question about, you know, Trump's relationship. It's a, um, what well, we all have these testy relationships in our lives. I mean, I don't know that Rev and I have ever gotten testy with one another, uh, but we have disagreements. We have, uh, he wants to do one thing one way and I want to do another way. And he, I'll probably leave and he goes, yeah, well, I mean, why would he do it my way? Or why would, you know, I mean, <laughs> life is full of that sort of conflict sure. and that sort of, um, and that sort of friction. And I think to believe that someone would go to work with Donald Trump every day and, and, and not have any moments of consternation or concern. And I think he defended what he did um, January 6th, very eloquently. And, and I, I think it's, you know, the, the one, the biggest problem I've ever had with Trump is that day. I don't think Donald Trump incited an insurrection. I don't think Donald, I don't think there was an insurrection to begin with. And I certainly don't think Trump incited an insurrection. I think he's guilty of peddling fantasy. But I think Mike Pence did what he had to do. I mean, I, you know, I understand all the angles. I get the narrative here and the narrative over there. Uh, but, but I think Mike Pence did what he thought was best for America. And uh, in that moment in time, you don't get a chance to do three or four different things. You have to do one. And he did the one thing that he thought was the right thing. And and when Trump turned on him, to, to me, that was just, that might've been Trump's uh, worst hour, as far as I'm concerned, in his, uh, in his presence. And once I generally I, think uh, Vice President Pence was a good and loyal vice president. I mean, right up to the end, whether you agree or disagree with how he handled, you know, that particular situation, I think throughout the uh, the administration, I think he, he served honorably and I was very happy that he yeah. was the vice president. But, but it's still there. There's an apprehension that a lot of primary voters have about how committed he is to seeing the, the, the true changing of a political party from the orthodoxies of what I'd call right. modern intellectual conservatism to an America first populist nationalist 
sort of agenda. I mean, I, you know, and he'll have to declare. I mean, won't sure. he? If, well, I mean, if he's seriously going to consider a run, well, I mean, I think he's, he's already have... seriously considered a run. I mean, he's introduced an agenda called the Freedom Agenda. Um, I think he's already in in running for president mode. Now, once again, they'll do some polling, they'll do some sample size, they'll do some some focus groups. Some of that, they'll get a good opinion of, or a good feel about where they are or not. Here's what I'll say. Here's what we've gathered since yesterday. If Trump doesn't run, somebody else is going to win. <laughs> And, and DeSantis would be the Trump candidate. I mean, he would be the guy that most Trump supporters would say, uh, that's the one I like. And then you've got the Larry Hogans of the world who Chuck Todd and Meet the Press and the national media have tried to say, hey, this is where the party historically has been. They need to return to their roots and understand, find their soul, so to speak. Well, I mean, we found out yesterday Republican voters in uh, Maryland choose the Trump agenda over the Hogan agenda. So if Hogan doesn't play well in his home state, he certainly isn't going to play well in other states. Pence could be a hybrid. You know, enough of the America first because he was Trump's running mate, uh, enough of the establishment. So some of the orthodoxies that have historically been kind of at the forefront of Republican politics. I mean, I, I can't get there because I'm an America firster. I mean, I'm a populist, rabble-rousing, uh, old-school Jeffersonian with a libertarian bias about a lot of my political opinions. But, but I think Pence will be an interesting subject to discuss and banner as we figure out where the party goes from here. And by the way, nice job. Mike Yano, our producer, he, he saw that project from beginning to end and delivered the vice president to our listeners Did this he just morning. give himself a round of applause? I think he did. What an arrogant northern aggressor. <laughs> but, but well-deserved. Good yep. job, Freehold. Yep. I mean that <laughs> sincerely. Great job. Not good job. Great job. Yep. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, Pence is an interesting political figure. I know what our listeners think of Larry Hogan. I know what our listeners think of Mitt Romney. I know what our listeners think of Ron DeSantis. I know what our listeners think of Donald Trump. What do our listeners think of Mike Pence? I mean, is he a hybrid? Is there a place here that for compromise? I mean, I don't think the party's in a compromising mood. I mean, I think, you know, once again, two to one. I mean, if it were, you know, 60-40, ah, if it were 55-45, th there may still be a kind of a battle for the heart and soul of America, uh, the political party that is the Republican. But I, I just, I don't sense that. I think you've got to be all in on America first or you don't have a chance to win the nomination. Um, I can't speak for the masses. I can speak for me. Uh, I, I find Mike Pence to be a very good and decent man. And I think Pence was faced, what uh, was was tasked with an almost impossible job, and that is, uh, you know, demonstrate loyalty to the guy that tagged him to be his running mate while doing what he felt the Constitution forced him to do uh, via certification of the election. Uh, in other words, Pence was at a, you want to get shot or, or you want to get electrocuted? I mean, you want to, you know, you're going to get put to death. You'd rather do a firing squad or uh, an electric chair. And I think Pence was put in an almost impossible political situation. Um, the, the question I would ask is, um, what is in his DNA, you know, and, and I guess that's the question I ask of all these office holders who aspire to be a nominee for president. Do you really believe in America first or are you saying that because you understand which way the winds are blowing? You know, I, I don't know a man's heart, uh, but to some degree, you know, we say we don't like being judgmental, but when we cast a ballot, aren't we being judgmental? I mean, what hadn't we kind yeah. of internally and introspectively settled that score? I mean, you know, you believe that Pence is an America firster. I don't. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying hypothetically. And um, so you've judged. I've judged. We've judged differently there. Um, I think the America first voter right now believes that Ron DeSantis 
is their guy. I mean, he's the one that's demonstrated a willingness to govern in a way that they believe reflects America first. Um, I think that Larry Hogan is a farce. It's a pipe dream. It's a little bit embarrassing to have to talk about what Chuck Todd continues to do or George Stephanopoulos or even some, some of the Republican hierarchy. I mean, they'll still argue that there's a place in this race for a Larry Hogan. Um, Hogan's uh, endorsed candidate in his home state lost to the Trump endorsed candidate 56 to 40 percent in a Republican primary. No, that's unfair. Very few Republican voters care what Larry Hogan has to say. So, so to trot him out as a reasonable alternative. Now, Pence may be a reasonable alternative. I mean, Pence may be the guy that Thigpen gets comfortable with. And some of the, um, I got buddies of mine who don't care much for the Trump bravado or the personality. They kind of like the agenda. So, so Pence could say, look, I was a part of the agenda that made energy independence, you know, possible in America, that we cut taxes and we put people back to work. We changed the scope or, or the change the face of America via the, the Supreme Court. I mean, I was in the room when these decisions were made. So if you're an America firster, you're probably suspicious of whether he really sincerely bought into the movement. Um, but if you're a traditional, you know, what I'd call 30% of the Republican base today, um, and that just kind of goes into the list, Cheney. Um, Robert and I were talking yesterday a little bit about Cheney. Cheney's going to get 30% of the Republican primary voter because that's the number who just don't want any more of Donald Trump and America first. I mean, they want to go back to the Bush-Cheney era, you know, uh, some of the uh, the Mitt Romney doctrines, uh, the John McCain ideology, uh, the globalist interventionist mindset. I mean, it's not, you know, the, the Republican Party, I, sometimes I'll try to convince you that it's 90-10. I mean, it's not. It's about two and three which for you folks in Pamplico breaks down about 66, 33. So there are about 30% of Republicans who could care less if Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or anybody that remotely reminds them of America first. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Or what is the other number? 8866. Till Ken. Okay. It rings at the same phone, right? Right. Exactly. Uh, but you can try either number yeah. uh, if you're and it's easier to say 866-TELL-KEN. Okay. Faster, efficient. Tell Ken whatever you choose to tell Ken. That's right. And he will um, discount accordingly um, <laughs> but, but because want, he knows everything, right? But that number is to go on the air. So if you'd like to go on the air and we invite you to, if you have a comment or question about anything you hear, call and give us your opinion. I, I've, I've saved the best news for last. Uh, we're in the last hour. Best news is in the last hour. Um, everybody's awake now. Even the liberal Democrats have kind of, I mean, they're, they're out of the bed. They're making their way around, probably getting a cup uh, latte or, you know, maybe a ginger snap cookie or whatever it is, those <laughs> lemon drop or something, whatever it is, liberals. I mean, hey, I watched something with Junior Johnson. I tell you, I'm a big NASCAR fan, and I started watching a lot of YouTube videos, and they'll start reading your mind. You know, you'll watch one about Kale Yarbrough and another one will come up about Junior Johnson. Junior Johnson passed away, but Junior had a breakfast every morning on his farm. And he started by getting his farm hands ready to go out and do their work. He knows they never got there on time unless he fed breakfast. So it was worth him, you know, to feed his farm hands breakfast and they'd come on time and go to work on time and they'd be well nourished and ready to go and be more productive employees. But they were asking uh, the lady doing the interview, it was like a North Carolina television station, and they were asking Junior about who comes. And he, you know, Junior's got this real country dialect. Who am I to say somebody's got a country dialect? <laughs> but anyway, he says, um, that anybody that wants to 
He said, what do you mean, Junior? He said, well, I mean, anybody wants to. We've had people show up that we don't know, and we'll just eat a little less so they'll, you know, make sure they get their fill. But then he said, and this is so cool, he said, it's a meat breakfast now. It's not a sweet breakfast. Because, you know, um, some breakfast is honey bun and a diet Pepsi or a honey bun and a Pepsi Cola. I mean, that would be a sweet breakfast. You know it's not a breakfast, yeah. but that's what people a Danish or eat something. on. Yeah, yeah Danish stone. or a donut or something <laughs> like that. But Junior said, it ain't a sweet breakfast now. It's a meat breakfast we have. Um, bacon that's and good. sausage and all those other sorts. So, yeah, we've got we've got two different si- sorts of breakfasts. We've got a summer, I mean, excuse me, a sweet breakfast, and then we've got a meat breakfast. But here's the big news. You ready? So last night at about 9.15, uh, I'm watching Amazon Prime. And uh, I started watching Sunday night a uh, show about the guy that founded Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a talented guy, but he just couldn't stop drinking. Anyway, I hadn't watched it all yet. I watched 30 minutes here and 30 minutes there. But but during uh, Amazon Prime, I get an email. And the email is from Ticketmaster. And it says... Uh, remember, we registered, or I registered as a verified fan once Springsteen announced he was going to tour. Um, and this is a European the, tour. This is the process you have to go through. I mean, I think it's Springsteen's well, I mean, you, rules. You but, told me you've never seen this many barriers to entry, so to speak. Well, usually there's concert promoters, record companies. And when we first started talking about this, when the tour was announced and you expressed Because I counted on you. Well, you, you want to go to the, the show at Madison Square Garden. So we started And I counted at, on you. Well, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I've not delivered because everywhere <laughs> I turn, it's a brick wall. And then we... we saw this verified fan thing that Ticketmaster is doing, I'm sure at the direction of Springsteen, and the idea is is that the real fans get access to the tickets. And I do, I admire that. I really do. And I guess at this point in his career, he can do whatever he wants to do. But I guess that it, that's make sure that there's not a bunch of industry people and connected people that are in the good seats. It's actual fans. So I've, I have struck out trying to to get you uh, in line for some tickets. So you're saying something complimentary about Bruce Springsteen? Am I am I hearing this right? I do. Freehold, sure. are you recording this? Okay. Because <laughs> in 10 years, there's never been a kind word that the Royal Rev of Radio says about the boss of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So, so if I'm not mistaken, I want to better understand. You just said something um, complimentary about Bruce Springsteen. I did, and, okay. it, and it didn't involve his music, by okay. the way. It was a comment about the way he's The strategy he's employed and who comes to the concerts his, or not. His business and looking out for his fans. I think that's but you, admirable. You, so, so historically, you've been able to go to Live Nation or somebody, and, and there's a contact somewhere that can help or not yeah. help right. in certain yeah, circumstances. There's, there's concert promoters, and that's their job, and they have access to the tickets, and they can you know, help you get your tickets or get in line or whatever. So I get an email last night at about 9.30, 9.15, and says, you've been selected. Well, I sit up in the bed. Uh, what do you mean I've been selected? <laughs> um, I've been selected as I, I don't have tickets yet because I had to register for a lottery. Now I've, I've basically got my, well, excuse me. Um, the day before the ticket, the ticket's going to sell next Friday from 10 until 2. The verified fans can buy the tickets to the, the Madison Square Garden concert. So I've got to um, pre-file. <laughs> you ready? Pre-file my payment method. Um, they will send me a text the day before. That is my verification pre- code. Your, that sounds like a credit check. I mean, it's just Make like sure I'm you're... robbing a bank. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm a bank robber. I mean, I, so I had to fill out a form a to become robber. a verified fan. Now I'm a verified fan. I had to fill another form to get on a list of other verified fans to be potentially winning a lottery ticket. So I found out yesterday or last night I won the lottery ticket. Still don't have any tickets. I filled out three forms. I'm waiting on a verification code. 
to allow me to try and purchase tickets beginning at 10 o'clock on Friday. So we may cut next Friday's show 15 minutes short because at 10 minutes (laughs) until you can begin shopping for where you want your tickets to be. The good thing is, is you are technologically savvy. So this is no problem for you. Well, I mean, last night, uh, Libby, come here a second. Uh, (laughs) Tell me what this means. I mean, Libby, will you help me get registered as a verified fan? So, so yeah, I got approved as a verified fan. And last night I got in, I got informed that I'm now in the lottery and I will get a verification code via text that allows me to go into this shopping room 10 minutes before, um, the, the official sale begins. Sale begins at 10. So at 10 until 10, I can start browsing in the, I guess, the Ticketmaster website. And they've got the, you know how they have the the diagram of Madison Square Garden, section 105 and section 145 and 225. So I can begin scoping out or casing out the joint to see exactly where I want my tickets to be. And, uh, and I'm telling you, I've seen Springsteen a lot of places. There's nothing like seeing him in Madison Square Garden. And it's the, uh, we, we, we agreed, I think Rev and I agreed and Freehold kind of agreed. It is the, uh, the Mecca of sports and entertainment, the venue that has probably hosted more monumental sporting and entertaining and political events than any in American history. Looks like a dive, looks like a dump, <laughs> but it is quite the historical oh, venue. Yeah. Let's go to the phone. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY says he has some info on Bruce ticks for oh, us. So okay. Let's hear it, Neil. Well, I, I got, I got the same, uh, you know, I emailed you, and I got the same same email uh, regarding the Greensboro concert. So uh, I'm not actually going. I was just uh, trying to help some some friends and neighbors out. So, um, well, am I, I do I qualify as a friend? Do, hey, Neil, do I qualify as a friend and neighbor? <laughs> well, I was just saying. I was going to say. Well, it's good. It sounds like you're going to go to Madison Square Garden, so I don't have to worry about you for Greensboro then, huh? Well, I mean, right. I'll email you this afternoon. How about that? Uh, <laughs> <All right>. Yeah. <laughs> well, but the only thing better than one Bruce show is two Bruce shows. So, so there you go. Yeah. Well, we saw Garth up in Charlotte last Friday, and our only mistake was not going Saturday night. But his was tough. His was a tough one to get into. Um, it, it, that, that's why they went ahead and opened up a second date. So this, I've never seen it like this before, but this may actually be a good idea. Because I'm thinking it's going to limit the number of people that can be logged in, and it'll, it'll eliminate the log jam. Yep, good deal. So anyway. Hey, can I, can I send you an email this afternoon? Sure, absolutely. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. <laughs> See, you, you build rapport. You, you build friendships over the uh, – I've never met Neil. Uh, Neil's never met me, but he was kind enough to send me an email. Uh, I hope Neil doesn't mind me doing this. Neil sent me an email last week saying, hey, I'm not going, but I don't mind trying to file or register for the lottery at the Greensboro Coliseum. I think he's got some friends of his that may want to go, uh, and he's trying to help them get tickets. And he said, if you want me to try and include you in this – uh, mix and yeah I'd, I'd love to go um to greensboro as well uh once again the only thing better than one brew show in a year's two brew yeah, shows what night of the week is that one that would be i think it's a saturday night as well i oh, think it's a weekend there you go uh, that's what i try to do i try to go by and okay this is on a weeknight no this is a weekend yeah this is a week you know can't do that can't do this i think it's in boston but it's on a week day uh the concert in boston the spring season. so i went by i went down and looked at every weekend date and um yeah, I would be very interested, Neil. If you're still listening, I'd be very interested in talking to you about um, the Greensboro tickets. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller is Jamie. Morning. You're on the air. Morning, fellas. Dave, I'm afraid I see a crack in uh, in your Bruce Springsteen wall, just like um, Ken does. <laughs> just like I, there's a crack in my wall, and I think you've got one, too, now. 
Is this yeah, is this jam the woodworker? Yeah, yeah. This, oh, okay, okay. Make note of that, Kate. I mean, uh, uh, Freehold. This is Jam the Woodworker calling in. Uh, yeah, we know what uh, some of those Republican <laughs> establishment people think. Of yeah, that. Jam and I were texting this morning about being a woodworker, and, and I'll go back to that in just a second. I'm sorry, Jam, but, but hey, I want to be clear that you know I'm, I, I did say something complimentary, and I'll call it like I see it. You know, and I've told you I don't like Bruce's music. I don't like, obviously, don't like his politics. I think "Born to Run" is one of the best rock anthems there is in the history of music. That's about it as far as far as it goes. And and I'm complimenting him not on his music or, you know, his deep lyrics as you like to play and recite to me all the time. Uh, but I think this business practice is admirable. He's looking out for his fans and I gotta respect that. Okay, good deal. Ken, do you hear that cracking? I do. And I'm I am i will exploit that. You know me yeah, well enough. Yeah. I will exploit I'll that. Hear crack. About that forever. <laughs> crack, 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 crack. But anyway, Ken, I wanted to tell you, you did a fantastic job with Vice President Pence. It was very, very appropriate, the, uh, your questions. And and uh, and I view what I had no I, – I, I knew Pence was not going to uh, do what Trump wanted him to do, and it, it wouldn't have been good if he had. And I put it on the level of um, what Ford did for Nixon, uh, pardoning Nixon. Let's just move on. And uh, that's that's what I see that Pence did. Well explained. Thank you, Jambi. I don't think there, I don't think Pence has any regrets about what he did that day. The, the the concern that I have with Pence is the same concern I'd have with a Nikki Haley. Um, they want it both ways. I get it. I mean, I understand why you would want it both ways. You want to be associated with the Trump energy because it's the dominant energy in American politics. But you also don't want to lose. Um, you, you don't want to. You want to stay in good graces with the establishment. I mean, I think Pence understands that if he completely sells his soul to the America First movement, he kind of sort of disassociates himself with the allied forces, so to speak, that have helped him get where he is. Same thing with Governor Haley. Um, And I I just don't think you can have it both ways. I think you've got to be either or. Uh, And I hate to use a Dabo analogy, but I think you've got to be all in or not. And I think DeSantis has convinced people that he is all in. He is a true believer. I have never met Ron DeSantis, have never spoken with Ron DeSantis. I don't have any idea if it's fraudulent, phony, well, or as real as can be. As governor. Sure, he has governed in a very uh, aggressive fashion. He's a, he's governed in a way that reminded people of Donald Trump. Yeah, he's not saying the words. I mean, he's his actions have proven to me. He's not shied away from a fight. And I think that's the biggest similarity DeSantis has with Trump is, you know, I think people saw in Trump somebody who would not run when the when the going got tough. You know, he would dig in and he'd fight you if you needed to. Uh, I got friends of mine who said he'd rather fight than, I mean, he'd rather climb a tree, the old country, and he'd rather climb a tree and, tell, uh, and fight you than stand on the ground and get along with you. Um, there, there's some truth to that. Um, but, but DeSantis seems to me to be the one candidate out there that the Trump crowd would be comfortable with. I mean, I'll, I'll look at you. You remember the Trump crowd. I mean, I'm a member of the mm-hmm. Trump crowd, but um, yeah. but but you've convinced me that you'd be okay with DeSantis, but you're not sure about anybody else. I don't put words in your mouth, but but I've, I've you've never said that to me. But I've I've interpreted um, that that you've you've almost said I want Trump, but if Trump decides not to run, I can live with DeSantis, no doubt about but it. But there's nobody else you're sure about. There's nobody else out there that you find as riveting as either one of those two. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I mean the only the only ones that would come close would be like Rand Paul, and nobody knows what his plans are. And uh, and he he tried. He ran for president, he and he ran into the well, Trump I mean, he, buzzsaw. He ran, he ran as the outsider until Trump shows up. Right. I mean, Rand Paul was the one guy that got just obliterated when Trump shows up because Rand Paul, I mean, if we believe what we believe, and we found out that, that indeed we were right, that voters were looking for something unique and different. Rand Paul is unique and different until Trump shows up. And then he looks like a, a, a quirky senator. I mean, he was not a quirky senator until Trump shows up. He was the outsider. Remember, he was on our, our show for a couple of times. I mean, he was an interesting, I think I even said he's the most interesting guy in politics in America today until Trump shows up. And then Trump is by far the most interesting, provocative um, outsider that, that, you know, and I think the one person that got just thrown to the curb was Rand Paul. I mean, he became that, uh, that weird guy with the funny hair, you know, and you can't be the weird guy with the funny hair and then, you know, launch a campaign that gains any traction. Um, the day that I knew politics had changed forever in America was the day they were comparing the size of their hands on a presidential stage. I mean, that, I'll never forget that moment <laughs> when, when every, all the candidates that. are looking at their hands. Well, your hands, hands are bigger than mine. And I'm going like, this is not a Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, this is the Republican primary, and every candidate is looking at their hands. And, and I, I just knew. I said, it's over. I mean, th- this is over. There's only one winner now. And what's the old saying? You, you lay down with slop or you play around with pigs and you get slop. Yeah, but there, there's one guy that was unbelievably comfortable in that slop. And everybody else appeared to be very uncomfortable, no matter how they tried to condition themselves to believe. Remember the other, we, we can do Trump's greatest hitch. Remember the day when, when Bush said something and, and Trump said, yeah, Jeb. Well, it was low energy Jeb. I think it was his nickname by <laughs> right. then. Remember low energy Jeb? You were standing right beside me. You know, and now you're on the end of stage in yeah. another week or two. By the next debate, you won't even be on the on the stage. And he just he he reduced everything to an absolute street fight. But I'll never forget the night of the debate when when little Marco, you know, and <laughs> and they they it's talking about the size of your hands. I'm going like, this is over. I mean, they, they, and, and American politics will never ever ever be the same, and it won't. I mean, it changed forever. And as much as Larry Hogan wants it to be, as much as Dr. Neil Thigpen wants it to be, as much as Mike Pence maybe subconsciously, without saying it, wants it to be, we're not going back to the old check in the box, you know, stale, uh, button my suit up, wear the red. No, that that is that is not where this party is headed. And uh, and I, I just think, I mean, I don't know that DeSantis is the only guy that, that has done that, but he's the most noteworthy guy. That has done that. Um, I still got my own J.D. Vance. I still think there's something about J.D. Vance that that is intriguing and interesting and could put him on a rocket ship similar to um, Barack Obama and the Democrat. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take our break. Cocky Mike is next. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. You missed the good concert Saturday with Garth Brooks in Charlotte. And I tell you what, there's somebody else that just lays it out for you and puts it on and give you a hundred percent. It was, it was so good. We had, uh, I had floor seats. I was on row 20 on the floor. And if we'd have gone Friday night, I would have bought tickets and bought, got another hotel and gone back again Saturday night. That's that point. Was. How long was so, the concert, Mike? How long did he perform? You know what? I don't know. I was having so much fun with those $25 <laughs> drinks I was drinking. It, it, 
I know that somebody said was telling me oh, I was ready to go at the 120 mark, and I'm like, well, how long did it, did it last? And, and and I don't know. We had a ball. Gotcha. Um, stumbled back to the hotel, which was about a mile away, and and found another place that served drinks that weren't quite twenty five dollars a piece. Hey, so Mike, how did how did you get such great seats? I mean, I saw the pictures you posted. I mean, you were right there. Those were great. Is Mike a woodworker? Uh, you know, I think Mike's a woodworker yeah. as well. I am a woodworker. By the way, I meant to call in on that. Tell that woman that I'm in the shop right now building three vanities, I mean, two vanities and a linen cabinet. By the way, um, Dave, it's funny because a couple of months ago, I'm going to shorten this story. A couple of months ago, my brother asked me, hey, you got all those Marriott points. Do you have any pool? And I said, yeah. And he told me the date, and I got him a room right by the stadium. He didn't tell me what it was for. And after I found out, my wife said, oh, I want to go. And so I went on Ticketmaster. I guess we've had the tickets two and a half months or so, $107 a piece. Of course, when Ticketmaster adds all their junk, those those $107 tickets, uh, were it was $300 for two tickets after they add all their fees and stuff. But we were on row 20. I could have got closer if I wanted to pay like two, 220 or 250 or whatever. But um, it was so good, we got home. He got three more dates. He got two dates in Houston. I asked my wife, I said, you want to go to Houston in late August? And she said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we're not going. That's, that's a little too much for me. But, um, it, no, I got them on Ticketmaster, and they were still available. And mm. as a matter of fact, we talked to a bunch of people in the bar Saturday that went to Friday night show and then turned around on Ticketmaster on the way out of the stadium and bought Saturday night shows. Of course, they paid a lot more, and, you know, the, the prices were escalating pretty quickly after the show. So, good deal. But he put on a good show. Go to my Facebook page. You'll see a lot of pictures. So. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate yeah, it, my man. showman. Um, no yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. And you said country music is kind of AGBG before Garth and after That's Garth. That's what I believe. Probably the most, uh, is it fair to say, the most transformational country performer ever? I mean, the world, I think the country so. music world was different before he shows up and fundamentally different after uh, the and, fact. And watch his, is, is, I think it may be on Netflix now or, or Prime, but they did a, a documentary on on him and his career and how he got started and it's very interesting if you like it does the venue matter here's an interesting question i mean we, you know we're 9 30 on a, on a wednesday morning does the venue matter uh obviously the entertainer is the entertainer is the entertainer the stage is the stage is the stage is there something about the the aura of the venue in other words where would be the perfect place to see garth Remember, um, George Strait always did the 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 rodeo, the the Texas rodeo, the Astrodome, I think, and they'd have sixty or seventy thousand people there, and then people would, you know, that I know would say, "You ain't seen George Strait unless you've seen him at the um at the Astrodome," you know. Yeah, I, I, mean, you know, I would probably tend to 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 find a smaller venue mm-hmm. if you could find one of those superstars to perform like at the township in Columbia or the performing arts center, but it would be hard to find one of those guys or ladies at the top of their game. I mean, you know, down the road, I mean, yeah, you, you could get a, um, I mean, I think John Mellencamp played the township, but I mean, Mellencamp's nearly 70 years old. I think he may be 70 years old. So he's not selling out, you know, the, the orange bowl anymore as he, as he formerly did. I don't want to blow Springsteen's horn again, but that's the one thing about the, the, the boss that is so uh, different. I mean, he's 73 years old, and he still sells out Madison Square Garden in rapid fashion. He still sells out, you know, multiple shows at the Met, other former Meadowlands. It's torn down now. But, I mean, I, not, I mean, McCartney. I mean, Paul McCartney is no question about it. Is is one of those guys at 80 years old is still a relevant rock and roller. Most rock and rollers aren't that relevant. Paul McCartney didn't play in the township. 
Springsteen didn't play in the township. Right. John Mellencamp is. As good as Mellencamp is, and I love John Mellencamp, Mellencamp plays the township. McCartney isn't. Springsteen isn't. I mean, that's just kind of, um, I don't want to say that's a line of demarcation. Garth will never play the township. I mean, Garth Brooks is in a different genre of music, but he's in that same class. I mean, he is a world-class oh, yeah. performer no that doubt. I've heard blows the doors off uh, when he gives a, a live show. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I want to put a bow on this. We probably won't because we say that, but we never mean it. Because I, 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 I want to go back to this um, this public sector, private sector. We may not have time today to do this, but I'm going to go back. I was reading an article just now, the National Review, um, about Hogan and Trump and um, this this I don't know spat between the two that morphed into an endorsement of one candidate, endorsement of another candidate. The the problem in in Republican politics right now is that there's still some holdouts of people who have influence and power who are just so unwilling to to accept that things are different. Um, The Republican primary voter today, because of that unwillingness to accept, the Republican primary voter today would rather have a Democrat win than an establishment Republican. I mean, that's where we are. I'm not saying it's good or bad. You decide. But the Republican, the America first voter today is is so opposed to the Republican establishment. They don't believe the Democrats led them down this road uh, of being kind of hoodwinked into, into thinking that the contributions matter and, uh, you know, the, the activism mattered and the, the participation mattered. The Democrat never enticed the Republican voter. The Republican establishment did. And the Republican voter today, two out of three, are so bothered by the Republican establishment that they'll take one on the chin for a Democrat to win. Now, once again, I'm not saying it's good strategy or not, but when you look at Hogan and Trump and the governor's race in Maryland, I think that is an evident example of um, the number one um, enemy of the, the America First political movement today is the GOP establishment. And, and if you have a chance... You probably not admit this, but if you were forced to cast a ballot in the name of a GOP establishment figure, and I'm talking about Mitt Romney or or AOC, I think half of the Republican voters in America today who identify as America first would vote against Romney. Or as just, crazy as AOC is, faking handcuffed. I mean, how crazy <laughs> that is, is so that? Silly. I mean, imagine faking handcuffs. I mean, I guess she read her own. He read her Miranda rights to herself, I guess. I have the right to remain silent. Anything I she say can and will be used. An act. Of course she is. I mean, but she's a pretty good actress. I mean, she does a good job of getting attention. Um, but would would somebody in that position, because I, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know that I could go all the way there to think somebody, like I could never find myself voting, given the choice between AOC and Mitt Romney, I could not vote for AOC. I would probably just have to sit it out. No, you can't sit it out. I mean, I understand that that's the cop out. Right. You can't sit it out. Gun to your head. You got to vote for one or the other. <laughs> Romney or AOC, who do you vote for? I mean, I'd have to vote for Romney. Okay. I would. Hmm. I think you're. I mean, AOC is just. But but think think of the think of the I mean, he's the not way you're having to process that. I, I know he's and he's not a friendly. I wouldn't consider him a friendly or or have anything uncommon with him policy wise or. 
anything. I, but, I didn't. But I didn't, she's kind of over the line. I didn't say every America First Republican. I said half of the American First Republicans, if given an opportunity to vote for Mitt Romney or for AOC, I, I'll bet a substantial share. What about you? Would vote. I'd probably vote AOC. Really? I, I find, yeah, I am that ah, bothered, disgusted. Um, I, I want them gone. I mean, I want the establishment taken. I want the leadership of the Republican Party to be taken away from these people who have misled uh, a and large I'm, percentage I'm of the American that. electorate. I just can't get over how bad her and her I, ideas are for the country. I certainly in my understand that. But to me, that's the more rational argument than mine. Mine is completely emotional. I am I am so committed to seeing uh, the 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 Republican establishment get their comeuppance that I'll give a, I'll give AOC. I mean that in other words uh, I don't like AOC don't believe in anything she stands for. But AOC hadn't lied to me for 30 years. AOC had misled me for 30 years. She is a bat crap crazy liberal and you know what you get when you get her. The Republican establishment have lied to me and you and the majority of our Republican uh, voters year after year, after year, after year, and there's no way I could cast a ballot in their name. Let's go to the phone. DW in Florence. Good morning, Don. Hey, guys. What's up? Hey, DW. Hey, man. I tell you what, you know, this uh, who you vote for thing, you know, Lindsey Graham's got me about where I can't stand to even hear his name anymore because he's, they call him Lindsey Gramnesty. That's a good reason for that. Uh, I'm sick and tired of him. Uh, if, he's, if, if there's nobody else, I'd vote for him. But I'm going I'm to be not near as passive as I've been in the past. I'm going to light a match and stay on his rear end as much as I can. Because it's just sick and tired of hearing this garbage. You know, they don't cut us any slack. Uh, at least, you know, liberals, I, I give them props for this. They stick to it. I mean, whether they like it or not, buddy, they stick to it. And uh, all of them vote the same way, and they all go the same way. They might not even like it, but because it's what they are, they stick with it. But during about chicken rear end, uh <laughs> Republicans will turn coat in a heartbeat and go to their side and, and don't even flinch. You know, it, it just it kills my soul to watch these guys cowtail to them over and over and over and over. And, and you know, they, they won't do anything. So it's up to us. If we're going to be Republicans, I'm conservative. Uh, if they're going to do it, that government, we need to hold them accountable. We need to stay on them hard and, and, and steady and not give them air to breathe until they come around to where the cowards, these guys aren't cowards in the uh, liberals. They got guts, man. <laughs> they don't care. If this is what they want, they go for it. We, we kind of piddle pal around. I'm sick and tired of it, so I don't know how other people feel, but I'm, I'm at the end. So, Thank you, DW. Appreciate that. Let me ask you, um, Rev, how many times have AOC lied to you? <laughs> I, I don't think how many times has AOC misled you? I don't think she how many has. times has AOC asked you for your vote? She hasn't. How many times have AOC uh, promised you some things and, and not delivered? No, she has not. How many times has the Republican establishment done that? Quite a lot. Soccer. <laughs> <laughs> let's, go, let's go to the phone. <laughs> I hear you. Here's uh, Bert in Florence. Hey, Bert. You know, sometimes you're a little more squishy than I like that you would vote for AOC. Uh, I have an issue with that. I can't believe it. Um, you know, I, first of all, just like Graham, Graham has pissed me off so many times I can't even count it. I, I can't stand him, but I would still vote for him if he's my only Republican choice. I don't really consider myself a Republican, 
but I have never voted for a Democrat and never would vote for a Democrat. No way, even if I had to vote for Romney, I'm going to tell you that would make me sick. Uh, I'm I'm really interested in this uh, Mike Pence. I'm going to tell you, um, I think he was a good vice president. I think he did his duty, just like he said. He did what he was supposed to do. Nobody liked it, but that's what he was supposed to do. Um, I, I have a really hard time whether I would pick him over DeSantis or not. I mean, um, that's that's a tough one. I'm I'm curious to see how that goes, but I think Trump's going to run. I think he's got to run. I don't think his um, his ego will let him not run. Anyway, y'all have a good. Thank you, Robert. That, I mean, thank you. I'm thinking about Robert Cahaley because I'm looking at polling here that Robert sent me a few moments ago. Um, thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. Um, Pence DeSantis could be an interesting primary. I mean, if Trump decides to take a pass, I think it's probably 60, 40 he runs, but I don't think he's, I mean, I think he's made his mind up, but I think there are people in his ear trying to talk him out of it. I mean, I think Trump's decided he's going to run. I don't know that. Don't know anybody that he's told that. I mean, I'm certainly not that intimate with the Trump organization, but but I'm I'm putting two and two together from things I've heard and stories I've read. I think Trump's made his mind up that he's going to run. I think there are people who are closely associated with him who are trying to talk him out of it. I mean, that's kind of the way I see this playing itself. And I think family members, kids, are trying to talk him out of running um, instead of being kind of the um, the chairman of the board, emeritus of America first. There is no official chairman of the board, but Trump is. Uh, the, the chairman of the board is emeritusly de- designated. Uh, he's there for his life. He can park his car wherever he chooses to. We'll put a portrait on the wall in the boardroom to commemorate his existence. We'll do everything he wants done. Um, I think his family members are trying to talk him into believe. I mean, I think his family members believe that's the best way forward, and they're trying to convince him of that. But I think when he sees this Trafalgar poll that has him beating Biden head-to-head, um, it's tempting. I mean, it really is because you've said it, and a lot of our listeners have said it. Um, you want it, you want him to see this thing through, and you believe he got jobbed on the second time. So let's give him a third shot. Once again, um, I'm speculating here, complete and total speculation. But if Trump, if Trump's kids talk him out of running, a DeSantis Pence primary would be pretty interesting. I mean, that really would. Um, it would be interesting to watch the debating. The positioning. I mean, I know who I'm for. I'm for DeSantis. I mean, I'm already. I'll go on the record right now. I would be for DeSantis. No, no, nothing wrong with Pence. I mean, I, you know, I think Mike Pence is a good and fine man, and I don't think Pence is the guy that Romney is. I think Pence is uh, a little bit cuts both ways. I think he historically has been uh, more moderate, more establishment as a governor of Indiana. I'd have to go back and read some of his um, some of the way he governed in uh in a Midwestern Rust Belt state. Take a break. We'll be back. In just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. Uh, yes, sir. Um, I was just listening to what you were saying about how you'd probably more likely go for AOC, and um, I see what you're saying. She's 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 transparent. You're going to get what you what you what you hear on the news every day, and and um, but I mean, as far as these, these these career politicians and everything. I don't think the problem is in, is in is in the uh, is on the hill. The problem is with, with with we the people. We tend to go, you know, just toe the party line, vote, and then leave them alone to, to their own vices. And we got to think of the U.S. as a as a business. You know, any business that leaves their employees 
to, to fend for themselves and to do for themselves, those employees are going to look out for their own interests. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, if we're going to really do this thing, we got to start putting our people's feet to the fire and, and start making our presence more known. And we need to go ahead and bear down on our employees. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. And I think that's, I mean, I think we're in the reason that politics is so controversial today is the public well, when, I mean, we can, we can deal with a little bit of uh, misalignment. In other words, what, what politicians say and do can misalign a little bit with what the public were told they were going to do. I mean, there's always been, I mean, you know, what's the old story? The politicians tell you anything. I mean, there's always been a misalignment. I mean, none of us go to the poll believing that that politician is going to do exactly what he said he was going to do or she said she was going to do. But it can't be completely and totally out of whack. I mean, it can't be uh, the North and South Pole. It can't be uh, from one extreme to the other. You can't have that uh, big a difference in what they say and what they do. And once the American public make a determination uh, individually and, and collectively that we've been lied to, not, not a little bit, a lot. Uh, the reason, I, and I say that to be kind of the contrarian, um, AOC's never lied to me. I mean, AOC tells me exactly who she, she is. She's, she's crazy. She's liberal. Um, she... she uh, despises someone like me, but AOC's never solicited my support for anything. AOC's never said, if you'll vote for me, I'll con- I mean, I'll show you that we see the world the same way. AOC is what she is. So, so when I see her, um, I take her for what she is and I accept her for what she is. When Mitt Romney says to me, uh, the voter, give me a chance to go to Washington and I'll show you what I'll do. And he simply does not. And that misalignment has gotten so off-centered that we live in a very confrontational, controversial, um, what I call revolutionary political period. People are not going to be lied to, but for so long. People are not going to be misled, but for so long. And sooner or later, uh, for a long time, the American voter didn't believe they had an option. Well, what do I do? I mean, I don't matter. And along comes Trump. And I think Trump empowered people who felt they never had power. Um it's really, it's kind of weird. I mean, it's probably a, a psychological lesson in here. A social, uh, probably a psychology. It's not psychiatry, it's psychology in here somewhere. Um, and whether he intentionally did it or not, I don't know, but Trump convinced people that it was okay to fight. It's okay to fight back. It's okay to say these things. It's okay to, to not trust politicians. And I think we were, we wanted to be dignified and we wanted to be respectful and we wanted to, you know, the Reagan wore a jacket every time. I mean, I still got friends who see the world through that lens. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to just chastise them and say, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, that, 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 that ship has sailed. We're not going back to transacting the country's governance in, in that way any, any longer. But, but once again, there's always been a misalignment. You accept it, I accept it. But when it gets this extreme, what we, we normally end up in some sort of quasi-revolutionary period. In this misalignment, as it relates to Mitt Romney and the voters of Utah, where do you think he lands next time? Do you think he's gone so totally the other direction from his voters that they'll vote him out? Well, I think Utah's so different because it has so many Mormons who voted the Republican primary, and he's a devout Mormon. Uh, I don't want to say it's all about religion and faith and that spiritual, but I mean, yeah, I think, I think there's no way Romney gets elected in any other state. Uh, him being a Mormon, a devout Mormon, and the Mormons making up such a large percentage of the Republican vote probably gives him 
uh, a distinct leg. I don't have any idea what that would be interesting. I'd be very interested. What, what do the Utah Republican voters think of Mitt Romney? Take a break. Back in a minute.